nature will be here without us. The only question is whether humans are going to inhabit have this planet in 500 or 1,000 years. And I think that single most important metric for that persistence of humans is soil carbon. If we can increase soil carbon, we'll be okay. If we continue depleting it, we're done. And removing cattle will deplete soil carbon. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast would literally not be possible without the support of our sponsor, Blue Blocks. Blue Blocks offers a complete range of evidence-backed blue light blocking glasses to suit your every need, and they also look really cool. Their signature sleep lenses block 100% of the blue and green light from the 400 to 550 nanometer range, giving you optimal melatonin release and the best sleep ever. They also have daytime blue light glasses for when you're working on a computer or recording a podcast like this. Often I use the yellow lenses because I don't want it to get too dark and I don't want to get too tired. I don't want to produce too much melatonin because I need to work here in the studio on the computer. So I kind of have like different blue blocks for all different times of the day. But after say eight, nine o'clock at night, then I'm rocking the darker kind of amber color lenses in the 550 range because I want to get tired and start winding down and going to sleep. They offer a full range of non-prescription, prescription, and readers with free worldwide shipping. They also have a really cool service where you can send in your own frames, which is dope. So you might have some great sunglasses, which I don't recommend wearing personally. It's a whole other topic. Uh, I don't wear sunglasses myself, but I have turned some of my other sunglasses into blue blockers, which is really cool. So I would highly recommend if you care about your sleep and you want some good looking blue blocking eyewear to protect yourself from computers and lights at night and all that kind of stuff, get yourself over to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com. And when you get there, At checkout, enter the code LIFESTYLIST and save 15% off. When I started this podcast in 2016, I quickly realized that without sponsors, it was going to be very difficult to keep up with the show. However, when I realized that, I made a promise to myself and to the audience that I would always maintain integrity and never promote any products that I didn't personally use or truly believe in. And I'm super stoked to announce an amazing new product today called Magnesium Breakthrough, which you can find at magnesiumbreakthrough.com. Magnesium is the body's master mineral. It's so powerful. It's responsible for over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. But there's two big problems here. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. Now, if you take this latter fact into consideration, it's just not logical to conclude that 99% of the population is likely deficient in two or more essential forms of magnesium. Just doesn't make sense. 
the good news is, is that when you do get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded from your brain to your sleep, pain and inflammation. It all improves and fast. That's why I'm so pumped that my buddies over at Bioptimizers, makers of the industry-leading digestive supplements, have just created Magnesium Breakthrough. Their research team recently formulated what I believe is the ultimate magnesium supplement and easily the best one I've ever seen or experienced with all seven forms of this mineral. And I've taken every magnesium on the market that I've ever heard of, straight up. I mean, I'm obsessed with magnesium, especially due to EMF, which is an entirely different conversation. Now, these guys even include trace elements of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps make all of the other forms more bioavailable. So this is by far the most complete magnesium product ever created. And until or unless someone comes out with a better one, I highly recommend that you give this one a try. Bioptimizers calls this product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a special promotion for you, the listener, right now at magbreakthrough.com slash Luke. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash L-U-K-E, magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash Luke. You can get an additional 10% off the normal package price with the coupon code Luke10. And here's what's up. The guys that make this product are so brazenly confident that you're going to like it that they will give all your money back if you don't. So with this one simple action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all its forms and upgrade the performance of your entire body, including how you look and feel in every possible way. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash Luke, enter the code Luke10 to save 10% off. Hello, hello again, my courageous warriors of Earth School. This is episode 296, Why You Can't Beat Meat, the Ultimate Carnivore Diet Guide with Dr. Paul Saladino. And this one, my friends, is a doozy. You're going to enjoy, absolutely guaranteed. But before we get into the meat of this conversation, let's talk about my brand new EMF Home Safety Masterclass. You can register by visiting lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. This is over five hours of content. There's seven modules, six bonus videos, guest interviews, downloadable PDFs. It is an absolutely high value, very useful course. That's lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. The coolest thing about this class is that it is only $149. And the reason for this low price, considering the value of the course, is the fact that so many people are taking a financial hit uh, due to the current crisis we're being faced with, and also due to the fact and uh, the ultimate reality that once you start to learn about the EMF in your home, in your life, and in your environment, uh, little by little, it's probably going to take some cash to chip away at fixing it. So I made this course as affordable as humanly possible and packed as much value as you can possibly imagine into it. So if you're someone that's concerned with 5G, and all sources of EMF in your life, the EMF Home Safety Masterclass is going to solve it. I'm really stoked about this. So again, go to lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. Now on to our guest. Dr. Paul Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He's also the host of the popular Fundamental Health Podcast and the author of the best-selling book, The Carnivore Code. He's used this diet to reverse autoimmune issues, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom had been told their conditions were untreatable. 
He's a fantastic wealth of information and uh, all of his opinions, as outlandish as they might sound to some of us, especially those of us on a plant-based diet, uh, are backed up by science. And so we really do uh, a lot of exploration into his research and subjective experience. Here's a few topics we cover in this interview. What made him ditch being vegan and go carnivore? The fact that there has never been a vegan population in human history. We also explore the idea that if a diet requires supplementation, it must not be the natural diet for humans. What the most inflammatory foods are. Paul's thoughts on omega-3s, PUFAs, and lipofuscin. The environmental impact of animal versus plant agriculture. The fact that organ meat supplements can be used to replace eating whole organs. My brother Andy Story's carnivore site, wildlumens.com. That's wildlumens.com. Check it out. Paul also shares which plant foods are the least harmful should you run out of meat while traveling. What he thinks about high meat, which is rotten fermented meat. His thoughts on how coffee affects the acidity of your mouth and microbiome. And then finally, we take a few questions from our Instagram live viewers. One was about how to lose weight, do calories matter, etc., We talk about Ray Pete's work and his surprising thoughts on kombucha. So this is an amazing episode if somebody's really looking to dial in their diet and learn about this uh, somewhat mysterious carnivore diet. So right now, without further ado, I recommend that you take a break, grab a steak, and enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Paul Saladino. Paul Saladino, MD. What's up, dude? Welcome to the show. Man, it's so good to be here, Luke. Thanks for having me on, my man. Yeah, I'm excited, man. We've been talking about this for a long time now, and uh, you were living in California, then you made the wise exodus to Texas, and uh, and I'm glad we're able to connect. Last time I saw you, I think we were eating some delicious meat, uh, of course, over at Belcampo, in the known universe, out in Santa Monica, and uh, I thought, man, this guy knows something about health, uh, not just as a health fanatic, but also a doctor. So I'm really excited to uh, dive in here. Yeah, man. It's super interesting stuff. I love Belcampo. I just had Anya on my podcast recently. We had a great conversation about the awesome work that they are doing from on their regenerative farms. Maybe we'll get into that today. If people are curious, uh, I'm, there's lots of information on my podcast about regenerative agriculture. So many questions come up usually in a corollary sense when we're talking about eating meat. So we can get there today if we want. Absolutely. That's on my list. So let's start off with something new and exciting. Your your brand new book that's about to come out, maybe will be out by the time we do this, uh, The Carnivore Code. Give me the basic, the basic spiel on that one. Yeah. So you can see behind me, if you're watching on YouTube, that's the first edition. The second edition of the book is coming out August the 4th, 2020. So there are people watching on Instagram live right now. You guys are getting the, the, the secret sneak preview of all this, but Formally, this podcast will probably be out right about August the 4th when the second edition comes out. And, you know, the book was super fun to write. It's great to be able to put your thoughts on paper and to create this, what I believe is, you know, a coherent thesis around what should humans be eating for optimal health? And and should we take a second look at the dietary landscape? And by that, I mean, let's just zoom out and, and kind of reimagine the way that humans exist within our dietary landscape. Very few of us are hunting and gathering these days, but what if we were doing that? How would we evaluate the relative value of plant and animal foods? And how would we evaluate the relative value of certain plant uh, foods uh, more than others? And then how would we evaluate the the values of things like animal organs versus animal meat? And just kind of reapprise 
what are the most valuable food for humans? What are, nutritionally speaking, where we get the most nutrients that are the most bioavailable? What makes us the most healthy? And are there some foods that we consider to be healthy now that might actually be pulling from our you know, optimal health reserves, pulling from our chi a little bit more than, than we would like them to be? So let's just take a perspective on that. And so the book starts with this sort of evolutionary story, this anthropology story that's fascinating for me. Where have we come from? What do we know about the human brain? What do we know about the size of the human brain and how that's changed based on, uh, based on fossilized evidence of the cranium, you know, the cranial vault size in humans, based on evidence of stone tools of hunters over the last two to three million years, based on evidence of animal mass graves, and then based on more recent evidence, looking at stable isotopes in, in human bones and teeth. And then you kind of progress the story to uh, kind of this advent of agriculture 13,000 years ago is when we generally see it. There's a lot of nuance there as well. And can you start to see some decline in human health? There you can. This is a story that's been told over and over now, and people are very curious about it. Jared Diamond has started to tell the story. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari has told this story a little bit in Sapiens, but there seems to have been something that happened when we started farming. So how does that play into the relative value of foods that humans were consuming for 4 million years before that? And then bring it to the present day and, and kind of bring all that together with what we know about modern day botanical science and looking at these plants. And we can now suddenly use things like mass spec or NMR to characterize compounds and plants that our ancestors didn't know about. So now we can actually see these chemical defense mechanisms, these chemical spikes and say, how are these actually affecting us and begin to run some studies on these. And similarly, we can begin to appreciate at a molecular nutritional level the, the value of animal foods relative to, relative to plant foods and sort of weigh these going forward. As you and most listeners will know, there's a lot of narrative out there that's anti-red meat, saying that red meat is bad for us, red meat is causing problems for humans. And so there's a large part of the book that goes toward debunking many of those myths. I try to debunk uh, the meat and cancer myth. I debunk the meat and heart disease myth. I debunk the meat and uh, lower short, lower lifespans or shortened lifespans myth. And so it just goes on and on to try and debunk those myths. And then I end with sort of uh, and this consideration of the ethics of eating meat and get into a little bit of regenerative agriculture. But in a sum, it's just my perspective from medical perspective and scientific perspective on sort of, like I said, re-evaluating how humans fit within this landscape today, trying to remember wisdom that I think has been forgotten about the relative value of animal foods versus plant foods and how that can bring us back to some pretty profound health that a lot of us have kind of forsaken. Awesome, man. Damn. No wonder you got a book deal. That's a really good pitch. <laughs> <laughs> interested in this subject, I'd be like, hmm, I need to, I need to check this out. But no, congratulations, <laughs> dude, on the, on the uh, updated version of the book. And uh, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. So I encourage everyone to go get it. And I'm sure after this conversation, they're going to want to. Uh, let's back up a little bit to the beginning of your journey. I uh, found it fascinating, but not at all surprising that you uh, were once a plant-based vegan guy and then eventually migrated your way back to animal foods and then solely animal foods, which is a completely uh, far leap. And, uh, and I also want to preface it by saying that this is a story that I've seen over and over again over the years, you know, 20, uh, 24 years now I've been into natural healing and health and what they now call biohacking. And I was a vegetarian for many years myself until um, my health failed as a result. And um, 
I just was actually the other day talking to a good friend of mine who's a very well-meaning plant-based eater. And, um, and he kind of took me aside and whispered in my ear. He's like, dude, I'm not feeling well. Uh, I've been plant-based for a really long time. And I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like my body just wants me, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, I've had this conversation so many times with people. So my suggestion is usually start using a little ghee, then add in some bone broth to make that transition and not too shocking of a way to your psyche or to your body. Uh, but this is, you know, this is something that's, I couldn't even count the number of times. Uh, so I just want to hear what your journey was like and also preface this conversation with, uh, I know that even though you're a proponent of this lifestyle and all that you teach in your book, you also are not dogmatic and shaming, which I really like in your approach. So for anyone that is, you know, eating a vegan diet or vegetarian or whatever, like, please listen with an open mind. This isn't to vilify anyone's choices. Um, I personally don't identify who I am by what I eat. And I would encourage anyone listening to get into meditation and look a little deeper and stop perhaps identifying who you are as a sole entity here on the planet based on what kind of fuel you put in the engine. So there's my preface, but let me hear your story on, on, uh, on that transition. Well, I really appreciate that, Luke. And I agree with you. I have a lot of friends who are vegans. Well, maybe let's just say not a lot. I have a couple of friends who are vegans, you know. I think we probably have some mutual friends who are who are vegans. And I think that so much of what we do on this earth is bigger than what we put in our mouths. And, and it's so much about kindness and compassion and how we live our lives. At the end of our life on our deathbed, nobody's gonna think I, I you know, nobody's gonna give a, a you know a crap what you ate. You know, they're gonna think about how you made people feel and, and sort of the quality with which, you know, you lived your life and how many lives you affected positively. So it's not about that from, uh, that that, that type of a perspective, but I do think that the foods we eat can affect our health profoundly and allow us to do more good work in the world. And, you know, like these people that you're experiencing or that you've, that you've encountered just in, in the, in the month of July, before this podcast comes out, I, I interviewed two vegans who were really, you know, why, you know, widely known vegans, John Venus, very widely known vegan physique competitor who added meat back into his diet and, and felt better because of it. And then, uh, Jacqueline on, on Instagram is a very well-known yoga practitioner who recently added meat back to her diet. So it's, it's happening frequently. And I just, my hope is that, that people who are making intentional choices with their diet will be supported, whatever those choices are. And that people who are making plant-based choices will have the emotional freedom to add meat back to their diet if they feel like that's a choice for their health and they won't be vilified by their community and they'll they'll actually be able to make choices for their health if they believe that that's the right thing for them. So my personal journey, I was a vegan many years ago. So probably at this point, it was about 14 years ago. It was right when I started as a physician assistant in cardiology and I just didn't know enough physiology at the time is the way that I look back on it. I kind of got into the writings of David Wolf and the concept was interesting. You know, uh, when you cook food, it, it harms the food and it creates these compounds, which potentially are carcinogenic, or at least this was the narrative that I was brought into. And, you know, eating, eating plants is, is the simplest way and it's the least amount of toxins. Ironically, I think completely diametrically opposed to that now. But so I went raw vegan for about seven months and I lost... 25 pounds of muscle. So I am now 170 pounds and five, nine and a half, five, 10 on a good day. And at that time I was 145 pounds, uh, extremely skinny and, uh, and had really bad, bad GI issues. And it was, 
it was just something that I could not see because I was so fervent and wanted this to be true and was bought in. And then eventually I just realized, hey, why am I doing this? I think I heard something from Jeff Bland and the Institute of Functional Medicine at that point talking about our genetic book of life and kind of this concept that our ancestors definitely ate meat and that it was a huge part of their own uh, evolution uh, from Australopithecus to Homo erectus to Homo habilis. And it's written into our genes that humans need meat. And that is something that, that we can debate with people that disagree with that. But I think there's a large amount of evidence to suggest that that's the case. And, and we can get into that. There are many nutrients that only occur in animal foods that allow humans to thrive. And I think that really suggests that at a genetic level, humans are meant to be eating meat and, and it really is necessary for humans to attain optimal health at any age. Now, after I was vegan, I added back in animal foods for like a paleo type diet for probably the next 10 to 12 years. And I felt better. I gained weight back. I stopped doing ultra running, which also helped with maintenance of some muscle mass. But other medical issues that I had, specifically eczema, continued to get worse. And in fact, they got very bad at times. I had eczema all over my back. I joked that it was my eczema tram stamp, but kind of, I get my eczema in like my low back uh, and it's really bad. <laughs> and I'll get it on my wrists. I'll get it on my elbows. In medical school, I got into jujitsu. And so you can imagine how well jujitsu goes with eczema, not well at all. You just get infections and impetigo and strep infections on your skin, which is impetigo. And that was very debilitating and frustrating for me. So I kept thinking, what is it about my lifestyle that is causing this autoimmune issue? And I, from the beginning, I'd been fascinated by the way that food was this massive lever in health and disease. And this really probably the biggest single factor that most humans can leverage to affect their health. Now, certainly meditation, stress reduction, mindfulness, all of these spiritual things are important. And food is huge at a molecular level. It's a big, big lever. So I was thinking, I still have eczema, even though I'm eating a paleolithic diet, I'm not eating grains or beans or dairy, I still have an immune system that is reacting against my body. There are still plant triggers here. So the next step was autoimmune paleo, which cuts out then nuts and seeds, nightshades, things like this. And that helped somewhat, but my eczema was continued. And I thought, okay, I'm doing autoimmune paleo and I still have eczema. Now, if I'd gone to the dermatologist, they would have said, here's some cream for you. You can't do anything about it. This is your genetic destiny. You just got dealt a bad poker hand. But I've never really believed this or wanted to accept that narrative in any of the medicine that I've done. Uh, if people know my story, they know that I was a PA in cardiology. And the whole reason I went back to medical school was because I really wasn't satisfied with the mainstream Western medicine narrative. I worked with a lot of really well-intentioned and intelligent physicians who just, we just are not taught in Western medicine to think toward the root cause of an illness, but that was what was most fascinating to me and where I really found myself drawn spiritually and ideologically to understand that. That's what I'm fascinated by. Uh, some would say obsessed by. What is the root cause of these illnesses at a molecular level? It's a fascinating question. So as I was progressing through, I thought, okay, now I'm doing autoimmune paleo. My eczema has continued. And when I got to residency at the University of Washington, I had some of the worst eczema of my life. And I just started cutting out more foods. And I thought, well, there's these things called oxalates. So I'm going to cut out oxalates. And there's salicylates. What if I cut out salicylates? And what about histamine producing foods? And then what about, you know, what about high lectin producing, high lectin containing foods? I cut those out too. And at, at that point, I was like, why am I even eating plants? And I think I heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan's podcast talk about his autoimmune disease improving with an all meat diet. And my first reaction is, that's crazy. You can't do that. Humans can't eat an all meat diet. That, I've been taught, you know, at that point I was 
kind of steeped in the functional medicine ideology and was had been taught that plants had all these magical compounds in them and were beneficial for humans. And, and we needed these and we needed fiber and the more fiber, the better. And we had to eat the rainbow of all these proanthocyanidins and polyphenols and they were beneficial for humans. So it really flew in the face of the ideologies that I was trying to appreciate as I was making efforts to understand the root cause of illness by pursuing a functional medicine education within mainstream medical, medical residency. So there were all sorts of inputs coming in. And that was really the beginning of my journey to sort of this animal-based ideology thinking, well, what's, what's real here? And what does the science really say? And can I find stuff that really questions this polyphenol theory? And it was a fascinating journey. I sort of just do things. I just jump in and then look later. So I, I started to do the research and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to stop eating all the plants, just eat meat. And that was two years ago. And in the last two years, I've probably eaten plant foods, maybe uh, half of a percent of the days as part of an experiment that I did with a continuous glucose monitor. So in the last two years, I probably had plants for four days and it was part of an experiment that I did. So 99.5% of the days over the last two years, I've had no plant food in my diet, zero and zero fiber in my diet. And that's been a really interesting journey. Within the first two weeks of doing that, my eczema was completely gone. And I thought, this is amazing. I haven't had this you know, clear skin. I haven't had eczema that has gone away in years now. And it's completely gone. And then I also noticed that my mood was different. My outlook on life was different. And this is hard to describe. Uh, I, I saw the world through different glasses. I've joked about this being the how likely you are to honk at somebody in traffic index went way down. I was just way happier person and just much more emotionally calm. And again, this is my subjective experience, but it just felt like things got easier for me when I cut out plant foods. And that might be my experience. I've heard it you know, reiterated by people in the past. Some people might say, oh, that was ketosis. But incidentally, the first few weeks of doing a carnivore diet, I was not in ketosis because I used honey in my diet. That's something that I then let go of for about a year and a half and have now reincorporated in my diet with the animal-based foods and the honey. So it kind of came full circle with the carbohydrates. But the first couple of weeks, I was not in ketosis. And I definitely noticed subjectively within my frame of reference that I felt differently just in terms of my mental space. And I was not someone that had anxiety or depression previously at all. I just, I just even noticed, hey, man, I feel even better than I did before. I was usually pretty happy-go-lucky, but things got even easier. So my eczema got better and my psychological outlook on the world, the lens through which I saw the world was changed. And I thought, there is something really cool here. I need to explore this more. Down the rabbit hole, I tumble and the rest is kind of history. And we can get into all of those sort of nuances that I've discovered and sort of some of these contrarian ideas that we might unearth as we do this sort of archaeology, this sort of excavation of the actual science around these botanical compounds and where plants and animals live within the human sphere of diet. Awesome, man. I'm excited. I'm excited to jump in here. Uh, just for the record, uh, my, my brother Andy's story, who's got an amazing site, which I'll plug, uh, called wildlumens.com, is a huge fan of yours. I'm sure he's watching us on Instagram Live. Uh, and he does all like carnivore content, basically. And uh, he went carnivore, maybe it's been almost two years, I want to say. And he kind of explained it to me. And because I'm a renegade and I like to experiment and do extreme shit, which this sounded extreme. Um, I, I actually tried it and I felt really good and I'm not a huge foodie. So I don't like food is not a motivator for me in terms of the pleasure principle. It's just kind of a utilitarian thing that you got to do. So 
I didn't really miss eating the food. Uh, I felt really good, but I just I found it to be incredibly difficult and inconvenient. You know, so maybe we can talk about that because my body was like, "Yeah, this is good. Just some ghee, ground beef, like little salt. I'm grooving. I felt amazing, but it was just like, oh man. But you know, I get I would get caught out somewhere at the movies or something, and then I'd relapse with some GMO popcorn, and then the whole thing would be over. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, based on your research, has there ever been a truly vegan population of humans on the planet in known history? No, there has not. And I mean, that's just what we we know as humans, but there's never been a truly vegan population. Now, in all fairness, some would argue there's never been a fully carnivorous population, but I think there have been many populations that are a whole lot closer to full carnivory than they are to full veganity, if that's what we say. And in fact, there have been some pretty interesting comparisons of geographically similar populations of people, specifically the Kikuyu in Africa and the Maasai in Africa, both looked at by people like Weston A. Price and then anthropologists that followed after him. And the Kikuyu were this African tribe or continue to be this African tribe that has a higher plant-based eating style. And the Maasai are sort of famous for their mostly animal-based eating. And and the physical differences and the health differences between them have repeatedly been noted to be very striking, that the Kikuyu are much shorter stature, they're much less muscled, and the Maasai, as many people know, are very tall, very muscular, and are thought of as, as a warrior clan. They're pretty, pretty physically dominant people. So in answer to your question, there's never been recorded evidence of a, an entirely vegan culture, and I don't think there ever could have been because of the nutrient deficiencies inherent in plant-based diets. Now, as I'm saying that again, I'll just, I'll say this again, that I think that if somebody really wants to create a plant-based diet, you can do that. And, and you just need to be very intentional about where you're getting your nutrients from. In my opinion, it's much harder to get a well-balanced, nutrient-rich plant-based diet than a well-balanced, nutrient-rich based uh, animal-based diet. So it just presents a very major problem for people. And a lot of times, they just end up with deficiencies. Uh, if people want to try it, they're welcome to, but I would do so with great caution and with the knowledge that there are also these other nutrients that are found in animal foods that simply do not occur in plants, but the corollary is not true. There are, and we can debate that, but there really are no nutrients that are known to be essential for humans that occur in plants, but not animals. But there are many of those nutrients that occur in animals not plants, specifically things like creatine, carnitine, carnosine, anserine, taurine, vitamin K2, which is a series of menaquinones, vitamin B12, the list goes on and on. And that, that inequality for me has always been fascinating to think, wait a minute, no, people talk about phytonutrients and that's sort of the, all the, that's like the hip verbiage at Whole Foods these days because Whole Foods has kind of gone plant-based, like phytonutrients, but nobody ever advertises on a steak it has zoonutrients. This has animal-based nutrients, but we really should. We should, you know, on a package of steak, which isn't processed, so nobody would ever really do this. It should say packed with creatine for your brain, you know, or packed with antioxidants like carnitine and carnosine, or packed with glycine so that you can make glutathione, your own endogenous antioxidant. But meat is never marketed in that way, but nothing could be closer than that. That's completely true. That's truth in marketing. Like, you should see a piece of liver in the, in the butcher counter or a piece of steak at the butcher counter. And, and there should be a label on it that says 
This is full of nutrients that will make endogenous antioxidants in you. This is full of nutrients that make your brain work better. You know, but that's we don't see that. All we see is you know plant-based stuff full of antioxidants, which is we'll get into why that's completely misleading. So there really are these zoo nutrients, and I'm trying to decide on a better name for that. But these are animal-based nutrients that are uniquely present in animal foods, and they're good for humans. So this is, I think, why there's never been a vegan culture. There, there are cultures that have eaten more or less plant foods and more or less animal foods, but animal foods are invariably part of the diet. And like I said, with the Maasai and the Kikuyu, when we compare side to side, even within a close geographic area, it really does look like the tribes that eat more animal foods do better uh, by most indices. I've heard many people uh, who you know, are of the belief that animal foods are not good for you point to India as a longstanding, uh, largely vegetarian continent of people. And having been to India myself for a pretty decent period of time, I didn't see a lot of people that looked really healthy. <laughs> like I didn't see anyone. And this is no, like, this is not a jab against Indian people. I love Indian people. I love India. I feel like I've been there many times in past lives. I have a, a beautiful relationship, but I I never walked around India going, damn, people are ripped here, man. What are they eating? You know, people were either, you know, just kind of uh, somewhat thin and emaciated in some cases, but most of the people there seem to have problems with obesity. And uh, that might be, you know, due to all of the shitty Western commodity food that's been, you know, that's infiltrated their food supply and they're not eating, you know, off the land like they once did. But if that's the marker of like, hey, these guys are vegetarians, this is working, that would not be a selling point to me, generally speaking. Not that there aren't healthy vegetarians or healthy Indians, but looking at a, a, a large population on a huge continent like that, um, that would not be indicative to me of like, wow, let's try and eat what they're eating. <laughs> you know what I mean? The rate of diabetes in India is astronomical, sadly, and there's a lot of variability within India in terms of uh, what they eat in terms of the north or the southern part of India. So, and these type of sort of epidemiologic observational data points are dangerous in general. This is similar to like the blue zones hypothesis that has been advanced. And in the book, there's a part of the book where I debunk the blue zones, like I debunk everything else that I can think of and, and kind of illustrate why Dan Buettner's hypothesis that these five regions of the world uh, where people tend to live longer than average uh, is, is really just shoddy science and a lot of mistaken associational data that doesn't prove anything. Uh, just so people understand this real quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down because it's often interesting for people if that's all right. The yeah. five zones, yeah, the five zones are Icaria in Greece, Sardinia in Italy, uh, Okinawa, Loma Linda in um, California. And the fifth one is the Nicoya region of Costa Rica. And if we leave out Loma Linda for one moment, and you look at those other four regions, and you actually go to those regions, you'll find that people eat a lot of meat. So Sardinia is famous for Sarda pig. And so I don't know how Dan Buettner missed this, but there are pastoralists in Sardinia that are, that are you know, well-regarded for raising the best pork on these high forest lands and they just graze all day long, eat acorns and roots. And any feast in Sardinia is going to have lots of meat in it. And the same is kind of true for Icaria in Greece. Uh, Okinawa is a very interesting story that people talk about on both sides, but there are a couple of stories and, and research papers that I mentioned in the book. The book has over 630 references. So 
if anyone doubts what I'm saying, I, I hope that they'll read the book and at least read the references and then bring them to a debate with me so we can go back and forth about them. But there are, there are studies of centenarians in Okinawa and in a number of the surveys that I saw, none of the centenarians were vegetarian. And Okinawa is an interesting place where they actually do consume a pretty good amount of pork. And that's often get, gets left out of considerations of their, uh, of their diet. And it's just kind of this convenient fairy tale that we have that these people are all eating plant-based diets when none of them really are. In the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, it's only a blue zone, which means that the people there are living longer than the average people in the country for males, which should give us some hint that a lot of this longevity is actually based in the genetics. Um, and we've seen that in U.S. longevity sort of centenarian populations as well, that a lot of what's making up these blue zones, quote, has to do with genes that are longevity genes rather than what people are eating. But in Nicoya, the males are the ones that live longer than the general population. And if you look at the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, they eat more meat and they use much more animal oil than the general population. So this doesn't fit at all with the story that Dan Buettner is trying to tell. And it's like, I don't even understand how anyone believes this is a fair theory. He's also left out 10 to 15 other locations in the world where people live longer than the average. I mean, what about Hong Kong, where the average life expectancy is 85.5 years and people consume on average about, you know, almost a kilogram of meat per day. I think it's like 1.4 pounds of meat per day in, in Hong Kong. It's the most of anywhere in the world. And they have this long life expectancy. This is the danger of these sort of epidemiology observational studies. Loma Linda, I love to talk about because it's so fascinating. So Loma Linda is this Seventh-day Adventist community. It's where Stephen Gundry sort of hails from. And a lot of his ideas are based in that idea. So Seventh-day Adventism is a religion uh, that began, I don't actually know when it began, but there's some very interesting history of this. I did a podcast with Gary Fetke on my show, which is Fundamental Health, if people are interested. And, you know, in the early 1900s, Kellogg's cereal company was founded in Battle Creek, Michigan by Harvey Kellogg, who lived with Seventh-day Adventists growing up. And in the Seventh-day Adventist religion, which I'm sure is well-meaning, they are very uh, against sins of the flesh and feel like meat encourages carnal desires. And so part of the thinking around all of these cereal companies and all of the funding for these cereal companies that came from the Seventh-day Adventist church was that by giving people low-quality processed grains, they could deplete the carnal desires that were sinful and masturbation. And so basically what they're saying is we are going to chemically castrate you by taking away the foods that make you horny. Now, most of us listening to this are uh, of the opinion that we want to have a libido because sex is healthy and it's good to share sexuality with people in a responsible way. And if you think about it, a lot of those nutrients I mentioned earlier that are found in meat start with the C-A-R-N, carnitine, carnosine, uh, creatine. These are carnal nutrients. This association between meat and carnal desires has been known for years and years. And this is because if you want to be horny, if you want your body to have a libido, you need to give it things like zinc and iron and B12 and these antioxidants and these, these nutrients that make your hormones. If you want to make testosterone, you need animal foods. And so this is not surprising. So a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist thinking that's connected with Loma Linda and the university there, so the University of Loma Linda uh, is actually a Seventh-day Adventist university. There's a medical school there that's based in Seventh-day Adventist practices. And the whole community of Loma Linda is mostly Seventh-day Adventist. So a lot of people there are vegetarian and a smaller percentage are vegan. And that ideology does come from 
This is how we quell carnal desires. Now, we could pretty much just end the podcast right there. And I think people would understand what we're driving at here, that that religiously, the Seventh-day Adventist group has figured out that if you want to have less libido, you don't eat meat. So I'll just leave that there for people to, to, to do with whatever they want. But I think you and I want to have a healthy libido. So, and most of the listeners do as well. But in Loma Linda, the, the average life expectancy is about seven years higher than the general Californian population. As people, people point to Loma Linda and they say, aha, see, they're plant-based. They live longer than the general population. But I can show you another study. And again, all these studies are linked. They're all in the back of the book where Mormons in California also live seven years longer than the general population, but Mormons don't shun meat. And so what's the commonality here? It's that within religious communities, they also shun alcohol, tobacco, and they favor family and community. And in fact, these are commonalities among all the blue zones that are overlooked usually. I think if you look at Dan Buettner's writings, he'll kind of say those things. He'll say, look, these are the commonalities in the blue zones. It's community and meaning in your life and not being overly stressed and, and, and having some exercise and being in the sun. And it's a plant-based diet. Well, the plant-based diet side of that is what's really gotten the press and everyone has forgotten that others' lifestyle interventions are also very powerful for longevity. And in fact, that's the only commonality we can see among many of these regions of the world where people live longer than normal is abstinence from tobacco and alcohol, family life, and general, just a little bit slower pace of life, maybe more mindfulness and some uniting principle that gives meaning to their life, having community. So that's what's interesting for me and is the takeaway, but we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions and say, aha, see, meet ages people based on these observational studies, because as I suggested, there's lots of places where that doesn't hold true at all. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I was uh, a few months ago, I was in that uh, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And uh, whenever I travel, the challenge is always where to find clean pastured meat. And oftentimes in countries uh, like that, there you know, there's not a Whole Foods, or there certainly isn't an Erwan, you know, or a Bel Campo. Uh, but I did find a little health food store there in Santa Teresa, and lo and behold, because there was so much cattle grazing in, in that area, which I know there's just farms everywhere, and they're all eating grass. So I thought, well, I don't see any you know factory farms here. I'm sure they exist, or they maybe they import their cheap beef for their supermarkets from the U.S. or wherever. But uh, I did find a little health food store and lo and behold, in the refrigerator, they had, you know, in Spanish, grass-fed beef. And it was amazing. And it seemed to be quite popular and, and, and local. So uh, I, I would agree with your assessment that uh, the community, the weather, the sun, the culture, and the prevalence of not only uh, meat, but really high quality meat and lots of grass and lots of greenery. So that that's one place I've been to on that in the blue zones that I could attest uh, is in alignment with your uh, rebuttal or hypothesis of that particular location. That's great to know because I keep hearing about how amazing the waves are in Santa Teresa. And so I want to go there and surf. And one of the challenges for me, like you're suggesting, is how do I get good quality meat in those places that I go to? So that's great to know. Yeah, the other thing, yeah, the other thing I'll add about Loma Linda, and this is kind of the icing on the cake, as it were, is if you look at the sperm quality. So I don't know why the study was done, but I'm super excited that it was. So they've looked at the sperm motility and the sperm counts of men in Loma Linda. 
And the vegetarians were worse than the omnivores and the vegans were worse than the vegetarians. And so that's a scary finding that the, the less meat that you ate, the less animal products you ate in a town that's considered to be a blue zone, the worse sperm count and the worse motility you had. And I think it's a pretty reasonable metric to say, hey, if you don't have motility in your sperm and you don't have a high sperm count, that's not a good indication of health. So every time I talk about that, I always joke that I don't know what part of males in Loma Linda is blue, but I don't, it's, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. To me, Paul, the elephant in the room here, when it comes to these uh, debates on what is the right diet for everyone, which I'm I'm sure you would assume there is no right diet for everyone all the time, uh, is this idea of ancestral living. A lot of people are into the paleo diet, yet we're living in a blue lit EMF radiated environment. And I wonder if the Loma Linda sperm motility issue uh, was partly due to the fact that that is not out on a beautiful peninsula with very few cell towers in Costa Rica or Greece or wherever the other ones are, but, uh, you know, in a pretty highly populated area. Uh, What, how much weight do you give to the prevalence of EMF exposure in terms of it trumping what we eat and actually being more damaging than eating shitty food? Oh, it's hard for me to rank it. You know, I certainly would agree with you that that we are exposed to way more EMFs now than we were evolutionarily. And I've always wondered when I go backpacking or I go in the wilderness, is part of the calm that I feel the fact that I, there are way less EMFs here than in the city? I, I always wonder about that. Um, but I think it's very hard for me to quantify. One of the things I do know is that it's a lot easier for me. And this isn't to say it's impossible to control my EMF exposure, but I can easily control everything that goes in my mouth. I can control my water. I can control my food. I can control my salt. I can control many things like that. It's a little more difficult for me to control my EMF all the time. If I'm in my house, like I have my Wi-Fi on right now right, so I can do Instagram live. You guys are welcome. Um, but generally, I don't have Wi-Fi. My house is hardwired. And I live in this cool little spot in Austin where there's only a few houses around. So there's a limited number of Wi-Fi networks. I don't live in a high-rise apartment. And I don't even get great cell service at my house, which is a miracle here. So I'm sure it won't be like that forever. Austin's going to change. But you know, there's not a whole lot else that I can do right now. I mean, when I was in California, I had an EMF curtain that I slept under and didn't really notice a huge difference. But I, I think that you know, the other thing I'll joke about is that I do wear... I heard Ben Greenfield talking about this and I was like, Oh, they make these like EMF reducing boxer shorts. Why would I not do that? Like, that's easy, right? I really like having testicles that work. Uh, people will know that in this conversation, and that's reasonable as a human. And so I was like, why would I not wear EMF reducing boxers? That's easy. And it doesn't change anything in my life. So people might call me a tinfoil hat wearer, but I was like, that's easy. I don't know. So I do what I can to mitigate it. And then the rest of it, I just, I, I just try to think about it and I don't purposely expose myself to EMF. I definitely put my phone on airplane mode when it's near my body. I do the things I can do, but I know that I can control my food basically 99.9% of the time. And if we want, we can talk about how to make it doable um, whenever it comes up. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. One of the downsides to living in our modern world largely cut off from nature is that we're constantly exposed to things that dysregulate our hormones or endocrine system. 
So I'd like to tell you about an amazing product called Pine Pollen Pure Potency from SirThrival.com. The reason I love and have been using this product for many years is its profound effects on testosterone and male hormones. As we age, many of us experience something called andropause. That means after about 35 or 40, there's a steady decline in testosterone and other androgens, which can make both men and women become excessively estrogen dominant. Add to that all of the xenoestrogens in our food, water, and personal care products, and we have a serious hormone problem. A problem that eventually forces many people to look into HRT or hormone replacement therapy, which is a very aggressive form of regulating hormones from the pharmaceutical and medical industry. So if you're looking for a natural alternative to that solution, the pine pollen is for you. The great thing about this product is that they've included some other key ingredients which create a really balanced formula for regulating your hormones and boosting testosterone. Not only does the pure potency contain pine pollen, which of course goes back thousands of years in Chinese medicine, but they've also included stinging nettle root to liberate your body's natural testosterone that is bound by sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG. They've also thrown in some Siberian ginseng, which optimates the body's natural hormone production. The wild pine pollen is flavored with orange, vanilla, and a hint of clove and maple syrup infused in organic alcohol and then bottled in superior Myron glass to protect all of the ingredients. It's produced in the USA and it is absolutely the best natural male hormone replacement on the market. And let me tell you what, it's also great for women. You know, don't think that when you hear the word testosterone that that is solely for men. This product is amazing for women too and its ability to help restore natural hormonal balance. So get over to SirThrival.com and check out the Pine Pollen Pure Potency. If you walked in my kitchen right now, you'd find about four bottles of it. I take this stuff at least twice a day. On a good day when I can remember three times, it's truly fantastic. So go to SirThrival.com and use the code STYLE10 to save 10% off. That's SirThrival.com. S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L. Like survive and thrive. SirThrival.com. Enjoy. And now back to the interview. That's a really sane approach. And I ask that because I've always eaten a really clean diet. I do all the supplements, all the biohacking. And when I lived unknowingly under these two cell towers, I got really sick. And that's when I started to think about, well, God, maybe maybe this is more important than the food in a sense. But that was also a case of acute exposure for three solid years. Um, and, you know, so it's just something I like to keep at the top of the, of the conversation because I think often people uh, miss this and get really hung up on the food. But I like your sane approach and I'm also wearing my lamb's um, <laughs> tinfoil hat underwear right now. And I just actually just posted a little documentary, a uh, short film I made about him on my Instagram today. Uh, my next question is, What's wrong with plants? Break down the oxalates, the polyphenols, the lectins, all this stuff. Why do plants suck for your health? So I just want to frame this and then I'll dive into it. My goal with writing the book, with what I do, is not to convince everyone in the world to stop eating 100% of the plants. It's really twofold. And the first thesis of the carnivore code is that, and we've kind of covered this and we can cover it more later on this podcast, is that animal foods are incorrectly, unjustly vilified for the last 70 years based on crappy science, okay? 
that animal foods, red meat especially, are an integral part of every human's diet to be optimal. So don't fear red meat is the thesis number one. Thesis number two is what you're asking about. And the way I frame this is that plant foods don't want to get eaten. Plants don't want to get eaten, and they exist on a spectrum of toxicity. And I'll explain this more in a moment. But plant foods, by nature of the fact that they are rooted in the ground, have had to evolve myriad toxins over the last 450 million years of coevolution with animals, insects, and fungi. It's just a requirement. That's how they defend themselves. And so plants do exist on a spectrum of toxicity. And for those who are not thriving, some consideration of that spectrum of toxicity with elimination of all or the most toxic plants is probably a reasonable thing to consider. Now, this is not as radical a concept as it sounds. There are many diets that already do this. This is the idea of a paleolithic diet saying, hey, grains and beans are full of toxins. You know, Stephen Guntry has popularized the idea of lectins and said, hey, there are lectins in seeds that can harm you. There are lectins in these foods. These can harm you. These are plant toxins. So the elimination of plants because they have toxins is not a, not a foreign concept to people unless they think about it in a carnivore diet. I think it's very extreme. Gluten is a plant lectin. We'll get into all these in a moment. But these plants exist on a toxicity spectrum and knowing which are more and less toxic for us as humans and eliminating the most toxic plants toward optimal health, I think is a reasonable tool for people to have in their toolkit. Now, if anyone is listening to this and they are just kicking butt in every way, then just email me and tell me what you're doing because I want to know. And you know, I would never tell anyone who has who has the libido, the body composition, the mental clarity, the sleep to change anything. If you're, if you're kicking butt, do what you're doing. But I think there are the majority of us could improve something. And so it's, it's good to have a tool. And this is a tool that's never been talked about. You know, you go to a doctor, even a functional medicine doctor is rarely going to tell you it might be the spinach. It could be the kale. Maybe it's the almonds that are causing you to have IBS. And that's really what I'm saying in the carnivore code is there is a much broader spectrum of plant toxins that are affecting humans negatively than we have ever been told before. And to consider this and use it as a tool, as you see fit within your own life toward your own personal health journey is a very powerful thing. So how do plants exist on this earth? Like I said, 450 million years, give or take, is when plants and animals split. And plants are rooted in the ground. You look outside and it's all green plants. And so if all of those were completely edible by humans, we wouldn't really have to work. Our, my, our lives would be completely different if we could just go eat all those plants. It would be great. You, just, you could just go and do what you want and I could live in a loincloth like I want and just shoot my bow and eat plants whenever I want. It would be like that scene in Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. They walk into the room and everything's made out of candy and you can eat everything. And everything is just, it's just sweet and tasty and it's not going to hurt you at all. Candy clearly will hurt you, but you get the point that I'm driving at there. It's completely the opposite. Because plants and animals and fungi and insects exist in this delicate balance, this ecosystem, plants have toxins. And now, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, that we have mass spectroscopy and NMR and we can do experiments. We can say, holy moly, there's a lot of these toxins that we didn't even know about. And we've not really characterized how most of these affect human biology. We don't even know. Uh, there are some experiments and that's one of the, that's a large part of the data set that was very compelling for me when I was writing the book was there's, a, there's probably thousands and thousands of these, maybe a thousand or 2000 of these plant chemicals that have now been tested in human cell culture, which is the best we have. It's, they're tested for clastogenesis, which is the ability of many of these compounds, which are 
polyphenolic to break DNA. And some of them do, and some of them don't, but we don't, we're, we're never told about this. You know, we just assume that all of these compounds and plants are benevolent and they're not hurting us, but there's a real possibility they're actually harming us. And when you think about the way that plants and animals exist, it makes a lot of sense. A plant doesn't want you to eat its stem, its root, its seed, or its leaves. They do want you to eat the fruit, and we'll get to that a little later. So that's the only part of a plant that is often a little different in the grand scheme of things. But most plants, the plant seed is the most highly defended part of the plant. It's like this little baby, you know, this baby, uh, uh, this baby that goes down the River Nile, you know, wasn't it Noah or one of these babies, you know, like this baby that goes down the... uh, uh, down the river Nile, and it's just completely vulnerable. If you eat a plant seed, that plant is not going to grow. And so generally, unless we have hybridized the heck out of plant seeds like almonds, or, you know, they're very toxic. I mean, traditional ancestral almonds and stone fruit seeds like peaches and plums, the, all of these seeds have high levels of cyanogenic glycosides in them. Plants do not want you to eat those seeds. They are highly toxic. Apricots, all these stone fruits, those seeds are very, very toxic. People might be aware of this with apples. Don't let your dog eat the apple seeds. Well, don't humans shouldn't eat apple seeds either because they're full of toxins and they don't want you eating them. And that's the most heavily defended part of the plant. We have to remember that seeds are actually nuts, seeds, grains, and legumes. And now a lot of the paleo thinking and the plant paradox thinking starts to make a little more sense. Ah, why do people do better when they do grain-free diets? Because they're eliminating seeds. Why do people do better when they do lectin-free diets that don't have beans or paleo diets? Because beans are seeds and they have all these defense mechanisms, whether they are digestive enzyme inhibitors or molecules like oxalates, which are dicarboxylic acids that chelate minerals and can accumulate in the human body. I can talk about more about those. Or there are things like phytic acid, or they are things like lectins, which are carbohydrate-binding proteins that sometimes mess with our immune system and seem to be able to trigger immunologic reactions in the gut. So that's just a whole set of you know, defense mechanisms in the seeds. In the leaves and the stems and the roots, we start to see these polyphenolic molecules. And these are the molecules that everybody thinks of as beneficial for humans. These are the antioxidants, right? Well, a lot of these molecules are actually phytoalexins. And I know I'm using big word on top of big word. I'm making big word sandwiches and I apologize for that. But it's polyphenols are plant defense molecules a lot of the time. Sometimes in the case of molecules like curcumin, they're plant pigments, but they're never vitamins for humans, meaning there is no unique role for polyphenols in human biochemistry. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Folate or vitamin B6, or which is pyridoxine or thymine or riboflavin, these are B vitamins that actually are cofactors for enzymes in human biochemistry. They have allosteric binding sites on our enzymes. They are needed for reactions, sometimes as electron donors or electron acceptors. They actually serve a role. They are a cog in the sort of watch you know, of gears and levers of human biochemistry. Polyphenols don't do that at all. Zero, zero, you guys. And how many polyphenols are made in human biochemistry? Zero. There are no polyphenols made by the human body. Zero. There are no polyphenolic molecules made by the human body that I've ever found. If anyone knows of one, tell me, but there's none. It's not to say there are no organic molecules made by the human body, but I'm getting into some esoteric biochemistry here. So when we eat a polyphenol, the question is, why would that be good for us? The plant has no intention of making a polyphenol good for a human. And we have assumed they are good for us. And I fear that that is a 
misinterpretation of the way we're looking at the science. People will also know about a whole category of plant defense molecules called isothiocyanates, which are not polyphenolic, but are the ones commonly found in the brassica vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and kale. This is things like sulforaphane, and I'm happy to talk about those as well. But they're all plant defense molecules or pigments that are made for plants to defend themselves against insects and predation, or they're made by plants as hormones and as pigments. So plants are not making these for humans. We can get into the whole, I mean, there is a realm of, you know, spirit molecules and we can talk about psilocybin, all this stuff as well, but that's sort of a different discussion. But, you know, plants generally are doing this to dissuade other animals and insects from eating them. So I'll just pause there for a moment and have the listener imagine something. Imagine that you and I, Luke, are at the beach and I'm going to, I'm going to bury you up to the sand and uh, bury you up to your neck in the sand. And I'm going to bury you really tight. I dug a real deep hole. You stand it all the way. You can't get out. So just your head is out. And you're like, okay, Paul, let me out now. And I'm like, no, this isn't over yet. I'm going to paint your face like a soccer ball. And then right as I get done doing that, this busload of irascible six-year-olds rolls up from soccer practice and they don't have a ball. And they, how are you going to feel? You're going to be like, whoa, whoa, Paul, get me out of here. I, you're going to feel really vulnerable. You're going to think one of those six years is going to walk over and kick you in the face. And you've got to imagine that's how a plant feels. A plant feels vulnerable. It's stuck in the ground. An animal can run away. It can fly away. It can bite you. It can sting you. It can gore you. Plants can't do this. So plants have needed to develop these defense chemicals. Let's just go back to the example of isothiocyanates and resver- uh, excuse me, uh, sulforaphane. Is that okay if I dig into this one? It'll help explain this. No, I like, I like this. This is really, this is some geeky shit. And okay. Fascinating. So the, the, the intention of plants here is very clear in the case of sulforaphane. So again, sulforaphane is an isothiocyanate. It's not a polyphenol, but it is a plant defense molecule. But sulforaphane, so here's a question. How much sulforaphane is in broccoli? Zero. There's no sulforaphane in broccoli until you chew it. How much sulforaphane is in a broccoli seed? None until you chew it. How does sulforaphane exist in a broccoli seed or a broccoli plant? It exists as a precursor called glucoraphanin, which is a glycosinolate. So there are glycosinolates, glucosinolates, which are made into isothiocyanates. So glucoraphanin becomes sulforaphane when it combines with an enzyme called myrosinase. But myrosinase and glucoraphanin are separated in the cell. And they're only combined when the cell is chewed and broken. So sulforaphane doesn't exist in a healthy broccoli plant or a healthy broccoli seed. This is a booby trap. You ever seen Goonies? Booby traps, right? These are booby traps. They're booby traps. There is no sulforaphane present in a healthy broccoli seed. There is no sulforaphane present in a healthy broccoli flower. It's only when it gets chewed on by an animal or an insect that sulforaphane gets made. It's kind of like those chemistry sets when you were a kid or super glue. You combine the two things, you get a chemical reaction. So what happens is myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin, you get sulforaphane. And what does sulforaphane do in the, in the animal? Well, it does a lot of things and we can talk about those. But one of the major things it does, at least in mammals, is compete with iodine for absorption at the level of the thyroid. You ever seen those pictures of people in Africa with the huge necks, the goiters? That's endemic goiter. That's because they eat foods that have isothiocyanates in them and they have an iodine deficient diet. 
One of the major staples in their diet are things like millet or cassava or brassica vegetables that prevent the absorption of iodine and lead to thyroid problems. This is plants getting pissed off at humans and saying, screw you, stop eating me, assholes, right? Cassava is a hugely popular root in South America. Cassava is full of isothiocyanates and also full of cyanogenic glycosides. The same sort of booby trap mechanism exists in cassava. It's so toxic that when you eat cassava, you have to grind it up and dry it for three days. And the reason you do that is because there's a precursor molecule called linamarin and an enzyme called linamarase or linamarinase. And they're in separate compartments, just like glucoraphanin and myrosinase. And when you chew cassava, linamarin combines with linamarinase. And what do you get? Hydrocyanic acid. And that is a lot like cyanide. Cassava will kill you. It will kill you if you don't eat it, if you don't prepare it. So what you can do is you can grind it up. It makes hydrocyanic acid. They leave it out to dry for three days while the hydrocyanic acid evaporates and then you can eat it. But it's clearly a substandard food. That is survival food if I've ever heard of survival food. So, and then even the edible cassava has these isothiocyanates, which are goitrogens, meaning they are going to affect iodine absorption the level of thyroid. You get this endemic goiter because people have such low iodine in their diet and you get major, major problems with thyroid, you know, thyroid hypertrophy because you can't make thyroid hormone without iodine. So the intent of plants here is very clear. And I think those examples just illustrate really well. It's like a booby trap. You're stepping in something, boom, trap snaps, gets your leg. And it's like, Hey, stop eating me. I'm discouraging you from eating me. And I think a lot of people will intuitively sense this, but maybe not be aware of it. I I don't know. I mean, this is, again, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I'll just say this. You know, when I was transitioning to carnivore, one of the reasons was I just felt like I would buy kale and it would go bad in my fridge. Like five weeks in a row, I would buy kale, it would go bad. It would buy kale. I was like, I don't want to eat it. Every once in a while, I would force myself to eat it, but it wasn't that good. I had to steam it or toss it with olive oil or something. This is really interesting to me. And you see this over and over in the plant kingdom that there are these precursor molecules that are sort of hiding that these bear traps waiting to be sprung. And if the animal doesn't come along and eat the plant, the trap never gets sprung. Now the plot thickens. And this is why I love long form podcasts, because this is a kind of a complex thing to explain to people. Now, the reason that plants just don't have sulforaphane hanging around is because sulforaphane is very oxidatively active and it would kill the broccoli plant. So the plants are not going to have the toxic molecule around. Uh, cassava is not going to have hydrocyanic acid in its, in its roots because hydrocyanic acid is an acid. It's going to lower the pH of the roots. It's going to be toxic for the plant, but it's going to definitely give it to the animals to piss them off. It's like a bee sting. You know, It's going to sting its prey to say, hey, stop eating bees or stop bugging bees. In most cases, the bee dies, and in this case, the broccoli is dying, but it's going to piss the animal off enough to, to kind of dissuade it. Or the idea is the animal's just not going to feel good. It's going to, it's going to have this intuitive knowledge, I should not eat that much of that plant in the future because this hydrocyanic acid or this sulforaphane is so oxidatively reactive. Now, what do I mean by that? We're really getting into chemistry here, but oxidation is loss of electrons production is gain of electrons. So when we say something is an oxidative stressor, it means that it is going to oxidize other molecules. It's going to pull molecules from, uh, it's going to pull electrons from other molecules. It kind of robs electrons from other molecules. It's like a thief. So sulforaphane is an oxidative stressor. 
it robs molecules of electrons. It's bad because when sulforaphane robs a molecule of an electron, it makes that molecule into a free radical often or a lipid peroxide. It's not a very good thing, and thus we create oxidative stress. Now, this is where our endogenous defenses come in, those molecules like glutathione that I talked about earlier. Glutathione is a molecular policeman in the human body that walks around saying, hey, you, you lost an electron. Let me give you an electron back. Glutathione is a molecular policeman that goes around giving molecules electrons back that have had them stolen by oxidative stressors. Does this make sense? So you don't want free radicals all the time. There's a delicate balance. To say we don't want any reactive oxygen species is untrue biochemically. There's a balance. There is a Goldilocks effect here. There's a sweet spot of reactive oxygen species. You don't want to have all of your oxidative stress gone. You don't want all the reactive oxygen species gone, but you don't want too much. And in the the case of botany with broccoli, sulforaphane would be too much oxidative stress. It would harm the plant. And that's exactly what it does when it comes into our body as well. So in addition to harming our body at the level of the thyroid, sulforaphane triggers oxidative stress. And this is where the confusion comes in and where most of the misunderstanding is. So if people are listening, this is a really important point to consider. The reason that we think sulforaphane is beneficial is because it is an oxidative stressor. It's an oxidative stressor. It is not an antioxidant. I repeat, sulforaphane is not an antioxidant. Polyphenols are not antioxidants. Anyone who tells you that sulforaphane or polyphenols are antioxidants does not understand biochemistry. They have a rudimentary understanding and they are wrong. Those molecules do not prevent oxidation. They are pro-oxidants. What they do do is by being pro-oxidants in the human body, they trigger antioxidant response elements in the human body, which turns on our endogenous antioxidant defenses. Okay? So we'll pause there. People say, aha, see, I knew sulforaphane was good for me. It's a hormetic, right? And I say, wait, just wait. It's not the full story. There are so many studies, and this is the case that I make in the book, that show that if you are living a good life, if you are eating animal foods, getting nutrients you need to make your own antioxidants like glutathione, and you are doing things like sauna and cold exposure and exercise and being in the sun, you don't benefit from sulforaphane in terms of antioxidant status. Meaning when sulforaphane comes into your body, it's an, it's an oxidant. It's going to trigger the formation of glutathione. But if you are already topped off in your glutathione, it does nothing for you. And all you get are those collaterally damaging side effects. So the point that I'm making in the book is I'm asking this question, why would we take plant molecules for a redundant benefit when they have side effects that are often ignored? It's like, we don't need these molecules to be ideal. And that is the thesis. That is the point that I'm making in the carnivore code. And there are study after study to show this, that if you are living well in what I call a radical life, which is just all the things that you and I do, heat, cold, sauna, exercise, sunlight, everything our ancestors would have done, there's really no convincing evidence that any of these plant antioxidants, which are actually pro-oxidants, do anything to improve the overall oxidative stress status of the human body. And again, there are tons of studies we can go into here. Now, this is why I think it's important to differentiate between two things like I do in the book, molecular hormetics and environmental hormetics. So people may understand the concept of hormesis if they're advanced. I'm sure your listeners do. Hormesis is what's been said. Plant molecules are good for us because a little bit of poison is good for you. Well, yes and no, right? And this is, I think that hormesis is a concept that was originally talked about with environmental hormetics, heat stress, cold stress, right? 
exercise, sunlight. These are environmental hormesis. They're experiential things that are a little bit of stress for our body that we do know trigger the antioxidant response system in the human body, specifically the NRF2 pathway, NRF2 pathway, and the, the body makes more glutathione. There's a great study I talk about in the book where cold water swimmers in Berlin had less glutathione after they swim in cold water for an hour. When they come back the next day, their glutathione is super normal, meaning the body has turned on antioxidant defense. This is what cold plunging does for the human body, right? You are giving your body a little bit of a stress. Cold exposure is going to be a little bit of oxidative stress. You're going to turn it on and you're going to get more glutathione the next day. You get this, right? This is the same thing with heat shock, right? Now- Jump in, hold that thought. I just have to ask a quick quick question because before it slips my mind, uh, someone commented on a post I did the other day about how awesome ice baths are. And they said, um, ice baths are horrible for you because they wreck your adrenals. Do you agree with that just as an aside? No, I don't. I, I've never seen the evidence for that. Certainly maybe if someone had a stress bucket that was already overflowing and they were super stressed, you wouldn't want to go jump in a cold lake because it's going to be stressful. But I don't think they're going to wreck your adrenals at all. I've never seen evidence for that. But again, it's like the cumulative stress idea. Got it. Okay. Hormesis, I think. Hormesis. So molecular hormesis, environmental hormesis. What's interesting is in environmental hormesis, there's no molecule, right? There's no molecule that you or I are putting in our body, okay? It's an exposure. And we know that when you're exercising sunlight, heat, cold, these are experiences and they can affect glutathione. They can stress you out a little bit and you make more. Now, I think we went really wrong wrong with the concept of xenohormesis, which is essentially synonymous with molecular hormesis. To imagine that you can put a molecule in your body and get the same effect as the sun is incorrect. And I'll tell you why. Because everyone is ignoring the collateral effects of these molecules, the, the side effects, what I call the package insert of these molecules. When you go to the pharmacy, which you or I very rarely or never do anymore because we don't take medications, but I had asthma as a kid and I remember going to the pharmacy. I have patients and they go to the pharmacy every once in a while. When I was a PA, I would give people a prescription for metoprolol or a blood pressure medication. When they go to the pharmacy and get a medication, it comes with a package insert. It has all these side effects of the molecule, right? Molecules that do not participate intrinsically in human biology, that is molecules that are foreign to us, all have side effects. We're aware of this. Why do we forget this with plant molecules? And so many of the pharmaceuticals that we use in Western medicine are derived from plants. Paclitaxel, there are many chemotherapeutics that are derived from plants and are actually in some way plant toxins. So what we've forgotten is that plant molecules have side effects. Plant molecules have a package insert. But we've never been told this because supplement manufacturers just want to sell you curcumin or sulforaphane. But sulforaphane has a package insert, and that's the problem. Why would you take a molecule to do something that's redundant that you can achieve with heat, cold, exercise, or sun that also has a negative side effect? You see what I'm saying here? It's not worth it. It's redundant benefit with an excess side effect. And this is the case over and over and over with these plant molecules. Now, the human body can detoxify them a little bit, but to use these plant molecules thinking that they're making you better is something that I'm debating here. This is the thesis of my book, The Carnivore Code, and it extends to even molecules like curcumin. Curcumin has been shown to potentially be anti-inflammatory, but it also has a package insert. It affects P53, which is a tumor suppressor gene. It affects a potassium channel known as the Herd channel. It affects topoisomerase 2, which affects the winding and unwinding of DNA. 
It has all these other negative effects that everyone ignores because it's a foreign molecule. Molecular hormesis doesn't work philosophically the way that environmental hormesis does. Environmental hormesis and molecular hormesis share a common pathway at the antioxidant response elements like NRF2, but the molecular hormetics are dirty. They go throughout the body and they cause problems elsewhere and they're redundant. We don't need them if we're already living a good life. And in the book, there are multiple studies I share that prove this. And I'll talk about those if you want. That was a long rant. Did all that make sense? It's, it, it, I'm hanging on just barely. I'm going to break down. <laughs> I'm sure that the science geeks listening like are with this 100%. I'm sure a lot of people that listen to the show are that, but I'm going to, I also want to break down things in a simplistic way so that I can get them. And I'm not being self-deprecating. I just really want to, uh, I really want to get this. But the question just came up around curcumin and some of these other uh, beliefs that we have around antioxidants and anti-inflammatory um, molecules that come from plants. It's sort of, it reminds me of the pharmaceutical model or the allopathic you know, medicine model of we're still kind of using those plants then as a medicine and not really looking at, well, why is the inflammation there to begin with? Because I take curcumin and it's got the black pepper in it. And I think I'm really, because I know I have inflammation. My body hurts all the time, unless I just got out of an ice bath. And uh, I mean, you know, it comes and goes, but generally speaking, I don't feel very comfortable in my body. So I'm always trying to like bring down inflammation. And I think I've done everything to find the root of it but still I'm taking an anti-inflammatory. It might not be a prescription, but it's, it's this really fancy curcumin or you know, whatever else I might be doing that particular day. So um, your approach, I think, in that is a little bit more in alignment with the functional medicine approach, which is like, cool, we can throw an herb or a supplement or a drug at this, but why are you inflamed in the first place? Does that make sense? Totally. You could also throw ibuprofen or naproxen or... Uh, acetylsalicylic acid, you could throw aspirin at it or Tylenol and they would do the same thing. You know, I can, I can totally block your prostaglandin system. I can block cyclooxygenase one and two and you with all sorts of molecules, whether they're curcumin or ibuprofen or naproxen or, you know, or Tylenol does it to some extent, acetaminophen, but they all have side effects. And we need to accept that curcumin has the same side effects or similar side effects that are unique to curcumin. And it's not a benign molecule. It's just a molecule. And in fact, aspirin is derived from willow bark. So the same sort of thing here. We know that it has side effects and aspirin has a lot of side effects that people ignore. And in the case of curcumin, there's a, the story is fascinating. Again, I tell the whole story in the book. Um, the reason that you have to take curcumin or turmeric with black pepper is that there is a compound in black pepper, piperine, that inhibits an enzyme that detoxifies curcumin. So if you don't take curcumin with black pepper, your body's pretty smart, Luke. It's going to detoxify it. It's going to say, that is a foreign molecule. Get out of here. Get behind me. You know, Your body is going to glucuronidate curcumin and you're not going to absorb hardly any of it, which is the way that humans have survived for 4 million years because they didn't absorb the curcumin. And it's very unusual. We would essentially never have eaten curcumin with a pepper seed, right? But we figured out there's, an, there's a molecule in pepper, piperine, which inhibits the enzyme that adds a glucuronide moiety to curcumin. That enzyme is UDP glucuronosyl transferase. So that's another reason that I actually don't use black pepper on my food because number one, it's a seed and because I don't want to inhibit that phase two enzyme in my liver. Because oh. anything, 
anything else that my body wants to detoxify with a glucuronide molecule. So there's phase one, which is cyclization, hydrolysis, methylation. There's all these phase one reactions in the liver. There's phase two, which is uh, glucuronidation, other, other, you know, you can add glutathione to a molecule, but this glucuronidation, this addition of glucuronide to curcumin is how we detoxify it. And when you take pepper, you inhibit that. So you're basically fighting against your body's response to say, don't come in. I don't want you. So this whole thing, I'm trying to turn the whole paradigm on its head and say, we've thought about this all wrong. It's all wrong. And in your case, it would be interesting to look at your case and think about other things that might be causing inflammation for you. Um, I can think of one or two of them, <clears throat> the plants you're eating uh, right now, but you know that's neither here nor there. So, <laughs> dude, you just you just broke my heart with the pepper, though. I like, when I think about because I'll be honest, and I've talked about this on the show uh, before, and I, I did an episode with Daniel Vitalis the other day. I told him this too. I feel best truly if I just pretty much eat meat and some fish. Like I'll definitely like, I don't do that because I don't have that kind of discipline as of yet. Uh, but that's what feels best to this body. Okay. Which is making sense now that I hear your spiel on this. But when I think about like, okay, I'm only going to eat red meat, for example, not having pepper on it is like torture. I'm like, how do you eat meat without black pepper? It would really take a lot of getting used to. Redmond Real Salt. I think I, I can make it for you. The next time I'm in LA, I'll make you some red meat with no pepper only salt and you'll love it. Anya, go to Belcampo, talk to Anya, say no pepper, you'll love it. It's actually not as not that much different than you think. It's if the meat is flavorful, you don't need pepper and it's a it's really inhibiting those phase 2 systems in the liver. It's a problem. Okay. You don't want black pepper on your food and or a lot of things like that. So, it starts to make sense, right? Like we see this with plant compounds over and over. The same is true with resveratrol. This is a highly touted compound and then we can move on and talk about other stuff. Resveratrol is a plant defense chemical. It's made by grapes and peanuts in response to a botrytis fungus. It's a plant defense chemical. It's not made for humans. It's a plant defense chemical. And yes, it has this pharmacologic effect of affecting the sirtuin genes, but does resveratrol have a package insert? You bet it does. It seems to decrease androgen precursors. It, it worsens glucose tolerance in humans. Uh, it can do all sorts of other negative things. Worsening androgen precursors, for those of you listening, means less testosterone for men and women. It acts as a xenoestrogen. So resveratrol has a package insert like everything else. And like all of the other concepts I'm talking about here, again, this is all laid out in my book. Um, I'm so glad I wrote it because I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote this in the book. You guys can read about this too if you want more. Um, it's, it's redundant. You don't need resveratrol to turn on your sirtuins. We know that sirtuins are important. They, they manage this NAD pool in your body, the NAD to NADH ratio. They manage the PPAR, you know, this DNA repair enzyme. They're part of this complex system. I did a whole podcast on my podcast with David Sinclair. We talked about this in detail, but you can turn on your sirtuins just by fasting. You know, you can turn on your sirtuins by doing intermittent fasting. So the way that I do my diet, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, is I eat twice a day in the morning and the afternoon, and then I fast in the afternoon. At, until the next morning. So I'll do intermittent fasting. You know that when I wake up in the morning, my liver glycogen is depleted. I'm in ketosis and my sirtuins are turned on. So you can turn on your sirtuins by ketosis. And it was so funny because I did this interview with David Sinclair. He didn't know this. And I, I love David. I respect him greatly. But this is the problem with being a, a PhD scientist. Sometimes your, your scope is limited. He wasn't even aware of ketosis. 
And I showed him articles during our podcast that people can watch showing that in ketosis in the human brain, uh, the sirtuins are turned on and the NAD to NADH ratio goes up. So all of you guys thinking about taking NR, nicotinamide riboside or NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, I don't think it's a good idea. And we could, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. It messes up your methylation. You can turn on your sirtuins just by fasting. You don't have to do it every day. You don't even have to be keto. I eat honey every day and I'm still going to have ketones in the morning. My NAD to NADH ratio is going to be higher in the morning. My sirtuins are going to be on. This is the benefit of intermittent fasting. Even with carbohydrates, you can have that balance. You don't have to eat carbs every day. If you want to do low carb long-term, you can. Uh, we can get into concerns I have about long-term chronic low-carb diets. But this is the idea here. So many of the benefits attributed to these plant molecules are not, they're not unique to plant molecules. You can achieve them by living in the way that our ancestors would have, because certainly our ancestors would have had times when they did not have food, when they fasted, when they had a kill, when they were bathing in cold rivers or when they were running around in the sun. Like All of these benefits are available to us without plant molecules, and then we don't get any of the bad side effects. So this completely turns the paradigm on its head. And I hope that everybody's just going like this right now, or that it made, at least that it made sense. Can you get iodine from animal foods? Yeah. Yeah. There's iodine in egg yolks. There's iodine in fish. There's iodine in uh, all the seafood. Yeah. And then uh, what about sea vegetables, the dulse, uh, the different kelps, all of these different vegetables that uh, people around the world seem to eat a bit of, are they in the category of the kale and spinach and broccoli and the things you're describing in terms of the anti-nutrients and their protective uh, biology? I think they're much less defended. I think the sea plants are much less defended. They are eaten by some fish, but I think to a much lesser extent. And I think you could actually go deep into botany and aquatic botany and call them algae in many cases versus plants. And so, yeah, my sense is that they have less of these toxins. For many people, I think they're easily tolerated. Again, at the beginning of the podcast, like I said, I'm not interested in everyone stopping eating all plants. It's about understanding the spectrum of plant toxicity. And in your case, what I might specifically recommend is if you feel best with all meat, go all meat, include some organ meats. I want to talk about the importance of organ meats. Include some organ meats, go all meat, and then gradually reincorporate plants one at a time and see what you react to. So that's the, you know, don't think about it in terms of, I can never eat plants for the rest of my life. That may not be how you want to have a quality of life, right? I respect that. In the beginning of the book, I talk about this quality of life equation. Ultimately, I'm not about telling people to eat all meat. I'm, what gives me the most meaning and uh, the best feeling is when I can help people lead a higher quality of life, right? Life is short. If I can add something to one person's life while I'm on this earth, I've done a decent job. So I'm just trying to improve the quality of life of one person. It doesn't matter how they do it. And I'm not going to tell them how to do it. But I think that in your case, go, go to a full carnivore diet and then add back the plants sequentially that you really want to eat and know what triggers you. In the book, I also go over five tiers of a carnivore diet, starting with a carnivore-ish type diet. And in the book, I lay out a spectrum of plant toxicity, which is something that we've kind of hinted at earlier. You know, I think that roots, stems, leaves, and seeds and nightshade vegetables are more toxic and less toxic are things like fruit. So if you are going to add something to your meat, I would recommend adding fruit. And there are a lot of things we think of as vegetables 
that are actually fruit, avocado, winter squash, things like that. Or you could do berries. Most people look at an all meat diet and they think I could never do that. And I say, what if I said, what if you just ate meat and raspberries and blueberries and blackberries and avocado? And they go, maybe I could do that. (laughs) So they're totally doable, right? Like much more doable with just four more plant foods that are all fruit and much less likely to trigger you and much less likely to be full of toxins. Is there a tier of that diet that's meat, fruit, and ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of dairy. While we're talking about it, I'm not a huge fan of dairy because immunologically, it does seem to trigger humans in a big way. Um, I I will say that, um, like I mentioned, I hinted at earlier, I've done a whole episode of my podcast with a continuous glucose monitor right? So I wore a CGM from NutriSense, which is an amazing company. And I've been incorporating honey back into my diet. And I think that for a lot of people, the elimination of carbohydrates in the short term is very powerful. In the setting of insulin resistance, lower carbohydrate diets really help. But long term, I think the goal is always to reintroduce carbs, at least cyclically, and see how people do. So there is a tier of that diet, which is meat, fruit, and honey but not meat, fruit, and dairy, unless you really tolerate dairy, don't have a problem with, uh, with, with dairy proteins. But myself and many people have a lot of problems with dairy proteins. But, you know, like, again, it's, it's you get to define what your highest quality of life is. And to make any intentional choice with your diet, I think is a step in the right direction. What about uh, ghee in terms of dairy? Would not those, those annoying uh, proteins be uh, burned off and skimmed off and you're just left with the fat? Do you think ghee is passable in, in your paradigm? It's mostly better. In cases of people who have significant autoimmune issues, it would not be my first choice for fat. I would choose tallow, which is rendered beef suet, which is the kidney fat, and then introduce ghee as like an intentional measure. So Start without it. And then one of the foods you introduce one at a time is ghee. And you see, do I react to it or not? I think personally that I even react to ghee. Some people are very sensitive to milk proteins. Got it. So before we move into my other line of questioning, uh, which is quite robust, break down for us for the people that perhaps got lost in some of the the biology there and and the science uh, geekdom. Uh, you know, what maybe are like the top 10 most inflammatory or problematic plants that people are eating on a regular basis. If I'm going to make a salad and I just can't resist, you know, eating some vegetables and I, they still feel good to me. What are the most problematic ones? You know, uncooked kale and spinach and things like that. Give me a few of those. And secondarily, does cooking the vegetables help reduce the anti-nutrient load? Okay. So I think that the main offenders, if I go into any grocery store and I'm trying to anticipate what most people are eating, it's going to be things like kale, cauliflower, broccoli. So the brassica vegetables, Brussels sprouts, collard greens, spinach is a huge offender. Spinach is very, very high in oxalates. In the book, there's a whole chapter on oxalates and I rank all the oxalates in foods. Um, And then beyond that, it's the seeds. And for some people, it's the roots. So when people want to go to make a salad, just don't say no to salad because there's not many things that you can put in the salad other than avocado that are not going to be on that list. If you want to make a salad with like iceberg lettuce, maybe, 
that one is probably going to be less offensive, but the leaves of plants tend to concentrate toxins. That's just the way it is. Even arugula uh, can have problems for people. So leaves of plants are just not things people should be eating, at least in the beginning. And so the framework that I would suggest is, you know, if you are struggling with autoimmune disease or low energy or body composition, like really cut out the plants that are most offensive first, and then think about adding in the least toxic plants and then think about adding things back in. Now, the, the one thing that we haven't touched on, which is really critical, and I've been talking about this a lot on my social media recently, is polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So incorporated in this whole discussion is you absolutely must eliminate all vegetable oils from your life without question, the poof, which is poof. poofas. Yeah. Yeah. Poofa. Not to be confused with fupa. Uh, so it's poofa. And it is, it is corn, canola, soy, soybean, peanut. All these oils are super inflammatory. We can talk about the mechanism. It gets very granular. But oils, polyunsaturated vegetable oils do not play well with human biology. We should not be eating them. Now, by eliminating seeds will be eliminating a lot of these polyunsaturated vegetable oils. What is the main source of polyunsaturated vegetable oils? If we're not eating vegetable oil, it's things like almonds and you know nuts and seeds, which are high in a uh, fatty acid called linoleic acid, which is an 18-carbon polyunsaturated fatty acid. It's an omega-6. And it really appears to me and many others that excess linoleic acid in the diet is a signal to humans to become fat. It's an evolutionary signal to humans that winter is coming and you better get fat and insulin resistant so you can survive a lean winter. Except winter never comes for us because we always have food at the grocery store in the same amount. So, but linoleic acid is an evolu- appears to be an evolutionary signal that winter is coming. It's like, uh, what was that show? Um, you know, winter is coming. I never watched it. Anyway, Game of Thrones. You know, so don't, you do not want your body to think that winter is coming. You don't want your body to become insulin resistant and to become fat. It happens in babies when they're nursing. It happens in chipmunks when they fatten up for the winter. When they eat a bunch of acorns and nuts, they get fat because they're eating polyunsaturated vegetable oil in combination with carbohydrates. So this is a quick aside and then we'll move on. So this doesn't get to be insanely long. But if you look at the combination of polyunsaturated vegetable oils or polyunsaturated fats, excuse me, so linoleic acid specifically, which is 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid, okay? You look at the combination of linoleic acid and carbohydrates, it only occurs in nature in a few places. It occurs in nuts and seeds and it occurs in breast milk. What does breast milk do to babies? It makes them fat. It makes them very fat because they are very vulnerable. And babies are sort of in this constant winter. They're just on the edge of life. They have to be fat to survive any famine. And we want them to be fat so they can grow brains and grow big and strong. I have the cutest seven-year-old nephew, and he is so fat. It's amazing. He's just he rolls, you know, rolls on his arms as he should. That's a healthy baby. And he will become more lean when he stops drinking breast milk and when he stops getting that combination of linoleic acid and carbohydrates. We can synthetically reproduce that combination of linoleic and car- linoleic acid and carbohydrates in things like, oh, I don't know, Doritos, tortilla chips, you know, corn chips. Any processed food out there is going to have a polyunsaturated vegetable oil, and many of us are going to eat carbohydrates in our life. So one of the benefits of a low-carb diet 
is if you take away the carbohydrate component there, there's less of that signal. So the carbohydrates may not give the signal to get fat, but those polyunsaturated vegetable oils, I believe, are evolutionarily a signal to humans to get fat. You don't want those in your life, which means avoiding nuts and seeds, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, peanut, and soybean oil, like religiously, like the plague. Okay? Really important. When it comes to the PUFAs and the... Uh, end result of that being lipofuscin and all of these other issues. What's your take on omega-3s, fish oil, or just the omega-3s that are inherent in fish? There's a lot of confusion about this. There's the repeat people that are like, all PUFAs, omega-3s are poison. And then, you know, I go interview Dr. Daniel Amen, who's been treating people with uh, TBIs for 40 years and using fish oil in high, high doses to bring people back from the dead with a combination of hyperbaric chambers, uh, obviously. But um, I, I, I hear some really intelligent people on both sides of the omega-3 fish oil thing. And I mean, you could just throw a rock and hit someone that has a, a really valid point for or against it. And I'm kind of left not knowing. So where does the poof the thing kind of go into the omega-3s and fish oil? Great question. I just did a video about that on my Instagram and YouTube as well, because people were asking me the same thing. So I can show you evidence that fish oil supplementation will lead to excess oxidation of human cells. So I think that fish oil supplements are a bad idea for a variety of reasons. And I'd have to look at Dr. Amen's research. I suspect that tons and tons of fish oil is not the major catalyst toward improving TBI brain injury. I think hyperbaric oxygen is hugely valuable there and might be the main effect. And what he's doing is multifactorials. This is the danger, right? There are many cautionary tales of excess polyunsaturated fatty acids of both omega-3 and omega-6. Now, the nuance here is that if someone is eating a lot of omega-6 fatty acid, you're going to need more omega-3 to balance it out. There are studies that show that in people who consume high amounts of omega-6, who have 10 to 12 or 13% of their fats as omega-6, improving, increasing their omega-3s improves insulin sensitivity. But I think that that is because their omega-6 is too high. So the ratio is important, but the absolute amount of omega-3, I think, is much higher in most people than it needs to be. Humans cannot make polyunsaturated fatty acids. But if we are eating a ruminant animals like a cow, there's plenty of EPA and DHA in ruminant animal fat for us. And there's a little bit of linoleic acid, a small amount, like 2% or 1.5%. The problem is with omega-6 is when humans go to 10% omega-6, that's a signal to get fat. And when humans go much higher on the omega-3 to balance the omega-6, then you get excess oxidation. I think that the ideas around lipofuscin are concerning and they're valid. There are studies to show that supplementation with excess omega-3s will create more oxidation in humans. So my position is that you need some small amount of omega-3, but you, need, you want to get the smallest amount possible by getting the smallest amount of omega-6. So you want to have that ratio balance. That's important. And that's easily achievable if you eat foods that are eating their species-appropriate diet and you are not eating a bunch of nuts and seeds and vegetable oils. Does that make sense? Okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, what about, <laughs> this is, this is good. I don't want to hear the answer to this because I love olive oil. I belong to like 
an olive oil of the month club, these like boutique, beautiful, amazing aromatic oils that get sent every month. And, and I eat quite a bit of olive oil. So would that be considered a seed oil again? You know, the olive oil is monounsaturated fat. So it's oleic acid, which is an 18 carbon monounsaturated fat, as opposed to an 18 carbon polyunsaturated fat. It's 18-1 versus 18-2. And oleic acid, I think the jury is still out on oleic acid in, in terms of obesity, but I'm going to break your heart here. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it gently because it's mostly based on animal studies. So there are some really fascinating animal studies in mice. Admittedly, it's in mice. And those mice were given diets supplemented with three different types of fat. Stearic acid, which is an 18-carbon saturated fat. Oleic acid, well, they gave them safflower oil, which is high oleic acid. And they gave them corn oil, which is high linoleic acid. Okay? So you see we're basically doing this experiment in mice. And we looked at the visceral adipose tissue, which is the immunologically insulin sensitive. It's the insulin determining tissue of the body. So visceral adipose tissue is the tissue within our peritoneum. That is where, that is how humans become insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. Everyone listening to this should know how much visceral adipose tissue they have. If you have a six pack, your visceral adipose tissue is low, but in a lot of people, they don't know that they have excess visceral adipose tissue, intraperitoneal fat, that is what determines the insulin sensitivity of the rest of the body, okay? So what's so fascinating about this experiment, I can send it to you or I can screen share it now if you want. Um, the, they gave these mice three different types of oil. And what do you think they saw with the visceral adipose tissue? Stearic acid, this saturated fat, shrunk the visceral adipose tissue. These mice got six packs. I'm super fascinated by this saturated fatty acid, which is highly present in animal fat, highly present in animal suet. It's highly present in kidney fat. Steric acid appears to cause apoptosis or apoptosis, cell death of visceral adipose tissues. It's crazy. Adipocytes in the visceral adipose tissue die when you give the body steric acid and mitochondria turn on. Fascinating stuff. Corn oil and safflower oil, which are linoleic acid and oleic acid high, uh, respectfully, both increase the visceral adipose tissue. So I'm not convinced that olive oil is as benign as we think it is. It's probably not as bad as linoleic acid, but there's a good chance that monounsaturated fat is also a signal to the body to become obese. So I would be very curious if you paused your olive oil of the month club for a month, and if you saw your abs come back. That would be a very interesting experiment if you decreased your mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids. I think that my suspicion is that indeed, as I'm suggesting, the, you know, the, the, the monounsaturated fatty acid is also a signal to the visceral adipose tissue to grow. Can I screen share real quick? I'll show you this. It's pretty amazing. Go for it. It would be a first on this show. So yeah, go for it. You have to enable screen sharing for me. Okay, here. Let me, uh, let me grab that. There we go. Dun, 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 dun. All right. It's all you. Oh, man. I'm like the king of screen sharing. So this is amazing. I'll show you guys the reference here in a moment, but you can see this is the little gross, but this is the inside of a mouse. This is the stearic acid. Look, there's no visceral adipose tissue. This is corn oil. This is safflower oil, Luke. This is what monounsaturated fatty acid might be doing to your visceral adipose tissue. It may not be good, my man. It may not be good. You can see here's the graph. 
low-fat diet, visceral adipose tissue, stearic acid, corn oil is the most, safflower oil, which is high oleic acid, still has a decent amount of abdominal fat, much more than stearic acid. Do you see what I'm driving at here? Yeah, that seed oils, PUFAs are not good for you. Probably not good for you. And then monounsaturated oils may not be great for you either. So this is the reference if you want to read it. Dietary stearic acid leads to a reduction of visceral adipose tissue in athymic nude mice. I'm glad I could be a first. I love screen sharing. Yeah, it's cool. Isn't that cool? I mean, I do that in meetings all the time, but I never thought to do it on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good breakdown of the fat situation in terms of the um, the fish oil thing. Um, it's interesting to hear that you're on the anti side of the fence. When you know, there's a lot of you, but there are, as I said, also a lot of people that are very pro. Do you think that the uh, high omega-3 intake of someone who's supplementing fish oil could be even more problematic if they are um, having an iron overload situation? Oh, certainly. I mean, everything is worse if you have an iron overload situation. And so my, my point with the PUFA is, you know, with the omega-3 is just to say that if you are eating an animal-based diet, you are getting plenty of omega-3. Um, if you are eating grass-fed, grass-finished ruminant meat, you're getting plenty of EPA and DHA. Um, I eat about one to two egg yolks a day. I've been kind of playing around with that. You don't need to supplement fish oil (laughs) unless you are eating a diet that is very high in vegetable oil and it's a processed standard American diet, throw away your omega-3 supplements. You do not need them. You just don't. Um, You're getting plenty of EPA and DHA in your diet already. And it's that ratio that's critical and you don't need huge amounts of EPA and DHA. And if one felt the need to kind of cheat with one of these other types of oils for whatever reason, do you think uh, dosing some vitamin E with it would be a way to hack some of the detriment to that particular? I couldn't, I couldn't say that because the problem with vitamin E is that we just, as far as I know, we just haven't been able to recreate a, a bioidentical vitamin E and And it's not so much the oxidation of the oil. What I'm talking about here is molecular signaling. These are fat molecules acting as hormones, quote unquote, like they're called lipokines. So yes, the the oil is more prone to oxidation, but if you have enough glutathione, your body can take care of that. This is a fat molecule acting like a hormone in your body. It's affecting the mitochondria because of the fat molecules structure. Vitamin E isn't going to change that. Got it. Okay. Now, what about, uh, I know, I'm sure you get this question like every four hours or so, but if one is eating only meat, are you able to get enough vitamin C from, if you're eating, you know, nose to tail and you're eating enough organ meats, are you able to get an adequate amount of vitamin C? That's that's a great question. I think you are. Um, When I have tested myself, looking at things like lipid peroxides or 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is a measure of DNA damage. Um, I don't see any evidence for increased oxidative stress, and I don't supplement with vitamin C. Now, I should sort of, you know, create the framework for that and say that my diet is is an animal-based diet that is relatively high in vitamin C. And by that, I mean that I eat eat raw liver, I eat raw thymus, (laughs) I eat spleen and I eat really basically raw meat. I blanch the meat most of the time these days, or I I eat the meat rare or medium rare. So 
Um, there, there is a good amount of vitamin C in animal foods and very small amounts of vitamin C on the order of 10 milligrams a day are enough to cure scurvy. And there's some evidence to suggest, at least in diabetic populations that are hospitalized, that 70 milligrams, 70 milligrams of vitamin C is better than 25 milligrams of vitamin C a day. But those are diabetics in the hospital. In healthy individuals, we really don't know what the cutoff is for a healthy amount of vitamin C or an optimal amount of vitamin C. I certainly don't feel like I have excess oxidative stress, and I definitely don't have scurvy. So I think that a lot of people get worried about this. And to that, I say, you know, I have no problem with people supplementing with a little bit of vitamin C if they want on a carnivore diet, if they're concerned about it. If you want to eat some berries, which are carnivore-ish in the first place, fine. Totally. You know, it's cherry season, eat a few cherries. If you want to take a vitamin C supplement, I have no problems with that. But clinically, um, I haven't seen it to be a problem, though it's an important question. Now, the, the other nuance here is just surrounding, you know, where you're getting the vitamin C from and, and that nose to tail concept as well. It is possible to get a vitamin C deficiency on an animal-based diet if all you eat is overcooked hamburger and spam. And, you know, the, the key is that you, you need to be eating some animal food, medium rare or rare. Probably it's better to eat organs. I think that when I've done the calculations, I'm probably getting 70 milligrams of vitamin C a day from animal foods. And there is a question of whether uh, those animal foods even have more bioavailability of that vitamin C than plant foods. So we don't know, but I have no problem if people want to supplement with vitamin C. I just, I'm not convinced it's necessary, nor have I seen it in my labs or the blood work of my clients. Um, the, the last thing I'll say there is that I do have some concerns about excess vitamin C. So people will say, well, why not supplement? It's totally benign. I'm not convinced the vitamin C is benign. Uh, there's some connections between high doses of vitamin C and kidney stones and too much vitamin C can cause GI distress. So there, there are problems with excess amounts of vitamin C. There probably is a sweet spot. And if people are concerned, take a little bit. And I have no problem with that. But I, I do think that in answer to your question, and this is a very striking point for a lot of people, there's plenty of vitamin C in animal foods. And we know that fresh animal foods are certainly an anti-scorbutic, which means they will cure scurvy. That's widely known. Okay, let's get into the organ meats and this concept of eating nose to tail. Uh, I've always found it interesting that humans uh, focus on eating the muscles of animals when they eat them. But when you watch the Animal Planet shows and a pack of hyenas takes down a gazelle, the first thing they do is rip out their organs and the muscles are often left sitting there for the vultures to come pick up afterward. Is, is that, am I observing something that's a phenomenon in nature? Do predators go after the organs first? And why don't humans do that if that's where all the goodies are? Predators do do that. I mean, lions do that. Crocodiles do that. Every, everything seems to do that. I have a friend in Seattle who has chickens and every once in a while, he'll sadly tell me the chickens got eaten by raccoons and they just got eviscerated. They just eat the organs. They eat the, the liver and the heart. I've seen videos of orcas eating sharks and they don't eat the shark. They just eat the liver out of the shark. And it's, there are unique nutrients in the organ meats. This is the idea of eating nose to tail. If you or I are in a tribe and we are going to go kill an animal, both out of respect and out of necessity, we are going to eat that entire animal nose to tail, the entire thing. And that's also going to give us a unique set of nutrients. If people out there are listening to this and they're thinking, I can get everything I need from the animal meat. I'll just ask you, where do you get your riboflavin? <laughs> 
because you won't get enough riboflavin from animal or animal muscle meat. And you really won't get enough riboflavin from plant foods either. One of the really interesting things that I came across from writing the book was that basically, if you are not eating animal liver or heart, you are going to be probably riboflavin deficient. Riboflavin is vitamin B2. And I think it's one of the most common B vitamin deficiencies that is often overlooked. And it's crucial for proper you know, functioning of the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme, which is this MTHFR enzyme. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole. I've done podcasts on that. You've probably done podcasts on that. But if you want your MTHFR enzyme to function properly, you need to get a good amount of riboflavin, which in most people is two to three milligrams a day. The only way to get two to three milligrams of riboflavin that I'm aware of is heart and liver and a few other organ meats and animals. You're not going to get it eating muscle meat and you're not going to get it from the plant kingdom. So for all of you guys listening, I'll ask you again, where do you get your riboflavin? And the same could be said for many other vitamins that are crucial. And these things occur in organ meats, which is really the magic of eating organ meats. The other thing about organ meats that's so interesting are these peptides. So, you know, our mutual friend, Ben Greenfield is interested in peptides. I'm interested in peptides, whether it's BPC-157 or thymus and alpha-1, these are produced in our body. In cows and in animals, BPC-157 is produced by the lining of the stomach. You can get naturally occurring BPC-157 by eating animal organs, by eating the intestines and all this kind of stuff. You can get LEAP, liver-expressed antimicrobial peptide 2, from eating liver. Thymus and alpha-1, any guesses where that one is? The thymus. So this is a whole realm of nutrients that are specific to animals. We're back to these zoonutrients that nobody's ever talked about and that they're found in animal organs. Now, I'll, I'll say something here, and those listening on Instagram will have to keep a secret. But uh, so the, the, one of the exciting projects that I'm working on right now is a supplement company that's going to launch in the beginning of August. So when this podcast comes out officially in August, people can go to check out my desiccated organ supplements. So these organs are hard for people to get. It's hard for people to get heart or liver or thymus or bone marrow. And so I really wanted to make these more available. I really like talking about it. So the company is called Heart and Soil. It's heartandsoilsupplements.com. And again, when this podcast released in August, people can go. We have a couple of supplements that'll be marketed. They're coming to market in early August. So all you guys listening on Instagram right now, you're in on a secret. Don't tell anybody about it. Uh, you can go see the website if you want. The website is in the beta phases. You guys can go give me some feedback on it, but you can't order anything right now. But in a few weeks, when this releases in August, you can go to heartandsoilsupplements.com and get beef. Uh, you can get bone marrow and liver. We're going to have a beef organs. We are going to have all kinds of supplements there. You can see all of them. We're going to have a blood builder, a brain supplement. We're going to have a testicle supplement. We're going to have a uh, suet supplement to get stearic acid. So lots of exciting things coming there. Really, my hope is that people will just eat the real organ. <laughs> but if they won't eat liver or heart, these are a great go-between. But getting the organ meats is super important, uh, no matter how you do it. Well, that you just stole from me my next question, uh, and it was that the desiccated organ meats. Right. I I use some every day. I take a, like usually one pancreas and probably about six. I think the one I have it's uh, ancestral supplements. I think it's called. It's a uh, like the multi organ one, or sometimes I just, organs. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll pound like I don't know six, eight of those just right when I wake up with a glass of water or something. 
But I always feel like it's not enough because if you look at a beef organ, it's, I mean, it, uh, like a beef liver, it's freaking huge. Like I'm always thinking, can you really get the, the micronutrients condensed down by desiccating them? I mean, obviously eating the real thing, especially raw, I'm sure is more bioavailable and nutrient dense. But obviously if you're going to make a supplement that's desiccated organs, there's still enough, you know, a, enough in there to actually be meaningful. There is. There absolutely is. The cool thing about desiccation is it's low temperature dehydration. So it's not like the dehydrator you have in your home that does 145 degrees. They're desiccated at like below room temperature. They're desiccated at like around 40 degrees. And you do that by lowering the pressure. So they're basically freeze dried, which is what preserves the nutrients. And But like dehydration that you do in your house, they're condensed down. So they're about, you about six to about six pills. If you had pure liver in the pill, about six pills would be one ounce of liver. And one ounce of liver has a lot of nutrients. Wow. So when you're, eating, when you're eating six beef organ pills, you're getting about an ounce of all those organs combined. Now, that means you're getting a little bit of pancreas, a little bit of heart, a little bit of liver, a little bit of spleen, a little bit of kidney. You're getting a small amount of all of them. So it's a, it's a meaningful dose. Ideally, you do 12 to 18 a day. But yeah, we'll get you some of the heart and soil stuff when, uh, when it comes out. I'm on it. Sign me yeah. up. Affiliate, let's do this. Yeah. But uh, yeah, because I, I recently, at the onset of this COVID situation, as that started to unfold, uh, the prepper in me came to life a bit, which is something I've been wanting to bring to life for a long time, just living in a city and having experienced some things here in the 90s where I realized like, wow, if you don't have electricity, food or water or toilet paper, you're bummed if you're living in this city because you can't get out. So I actually went um, and contacted a farm up in Bakersfield and talked to the rancher and vetted him in terms of the water that his cattle are drinking. If he tests for glyphosate, you know, is it humane, organic, grass-fed, whole thing? And he passed with flying colors. And I went up there and bought a quarter steer from him. And it's in my garage. And of course, when you buy the quarter steer, like they're going to give you whatever organ meats came with your portion of that steer. So in the garage, I've got all these organ meats and I'm taking out the fillets and the tri-tips and I'm taking all the choice cuts and eating a lot of ground beef. And I know I'm going to end up with a freezer down there that just has like the organ meats left in the bottom of it. So um, it's encouraging uh, for you to you know remind me of how healthy those can be. I just have the hardest time getting around the flavor. And I think, I think that's something that just has to do with how we're raised on supermarket meat that if we would have been raised as hunter-gatherer kids, right? And the organ meats were the prized meats, we would have gotten used to that really kind of gamey flavor. And that would have been chronic to us. But because we're raised on McDonald's hamburgers, or many of us were, um, that's the flavor that we're used to and everything else feels too strong, you know? So have you found hacks to desensitize yourself or, or resensitize yourself to actually enjoy the flavor of organ meats? It gets easier over time and maybe I'm an alien, but I've really come to enjoy them. So what I started with liver was doing frozen liver. You cut it up into small pieces and you chew it or you just swallow it. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I graduated to liver shooters, which I joke with my friend, you know, uh, uh, the minimalist guys, you know, Josh and Ryan about, but you just do a small piece of liver about the size of a quarter and you just kind of take, uh, you put it raw in your mouth and you swallow it down with a, a swig of bone broth or water. It's a shooter. And that way you'll taste it, but you don't have to chew it. And that gets, that gets easier and easier. And now I can chew liver if I want, no problem. But 
that's generally how I do it. And I really like the taste of them now. Spleen is good. The texture of some of them is a little funny, but if I can't do the texture or they're too sort of sinewy or uh, collagen-y or connective tissue, I'll just swallow them. I'll cut them up and swallow them. And I think that our ancestors did that. Now, this may sound gross to people, but there's many accounts of indigenous children used to take the gallbladder, which was full of salt in the bile salts, and they used to squirt the gall, the bile, onto meat or organs to make them saltier. So it sounds absolutely disgusting to us, but it's an illustration of what you're saying that they're just so different in terms of our sensibilities from our ancestors. And we would do well to get these back in our diet, however we can do it, you know, do it with desiccated organs and then do it with the real thing if you can, but start with liver shooters and then do the other ones, but don't waste them. If you need me, just call me up. I'll come out to Los Angeles. We'll eat organs together. We'll invite, we'll invite Ben Greenfield. All right. Yeah. You reminded me of that. I used to, I used to get the grass-fed beef organs uh, at the uh, farmer's market and I would chop them into little cubes and put them on a cookie sheet with some, you know, MCT oil so they didn't stick. And then, yeah, I would just pop, you know, just put them in a little uh, bowl and just pop them like pills periodically throughout the day. And then I got lazy and fell out of practice with it. Um, I've heard that grass-fed beef liver is toe-to-toe nutrient density-wise with oysters. Who do you think wins between those two just in terms of like the amount of nutrition? It's, it's liver, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. The problem I have with oysters is that they're benthic and they're just getting to be so dirty. They're full of cadmium and they're full of mercury these days. They're on the bottom of the ocean. So they're pretty darn great. And I wish I would eat them all the time, but I don't even eat them anymore because they're just so full of heavy metals. But I think if you actually look at what's in an oyster and you look at what's in liver, it's pretty similar. Oysters have more zinc. I think beef liver has got a whole lot more choline and vitamin K2 and selenium, uh, all kinds of good stuff in there. But oysters are definitely nutritious. If somebody had a source for oysters that they knew were low cadmium and low mercury, do it. But I think that what we're coming down to in 2020 is that land animals are simply the cleanest animals out there. I drew this analogy the other day on a podcast with my friend, Chris Kresser. Um, Imagine eating a cow raised in Wuhan, China or Tokyo. It would be a cow that's breathing smog all the time. Well, that's basically what all of our fish is doing in 2020. We've just polluted the oceans. They're swimming in it. And there are lots of places in the world where the air is pretty good. You know, they're not swimming in pollution. You probably don't want to eat a cow raised in China, not because of coronavirus in Wuhan, just because Wuhan has some of the worst air quality in the world. So that's what you think about with fish is just what's the air quality, quote unquote, of the fish you're eating. And other than the toxic load, what would be the argument against fish in terms of the carnivore diet? It's just basically the idea. Well, there's a couple of problems I have with fish. The first is just the toxin load is massive. Uh, They're just, they're really all, it's like eating 100% of your cows from Tokyo or Beijing, China, or, you know, really polluted places. And um, that's not a good thing. And then also, you know, I think that ruminants are unique in the way that they structure their fat. And I do think that they're, you know, if you can eat fish nose to tail, you're probably going to do pretty good, but there are unique nutrients and ruminants that are concentrated there. I suspect that a ruminant heart has more CoQ10, for instance. I think that land animals are valuable for all humans. Fish are a good go-between, but we've just polluted them so damn much. 
And so in terms of fish, even if you're eating wild fish from cold waters, it's difficult to trace that and determine what water is more or less polluted. Because I'm assuming there are some fisheries on the planet that are relatively clean still, or do you think they're all just blown out and it's best just to avoid it altogether? It's tough to say. I think that in moderation, sure. Just make sure you're eating low mercury fish, wild salmon. Know that if you go to get sushi, that is farm-raised salmon unless you are told otherwise. And that's wildly misleading for people. But I love I love the shellfish. And I've just had to really personally, I've stopped eating scallops. I've stopped eating mussels. I've stopped eating oysters for that reason. And I don't feel any worse. I think I feel better. It's subjective. And I just think that people need to be aware that Fish, in my humble opinion, should not be the mainstay of your diet. It shouldn't be the mainstay of any diet, whether it's pescatarian or carnivore. We're in 2020. It's really, we've, this is a sad story, but land animals are the way we should go. Now, occasionally, sure, but I don't like canned sardines. I think they're probably going to be mostly oxidized. They're pretty damn old. Uh, they're just not fresh. But if you want to get the fish fresh, and it's a s- smaller fish, not a tuna, uh, in a cold water, it's fine. Eat it, but just realize that if you do it regularly, you'll want to check your serum heavy metals. And I've had clients that eat wild salmon three times a week, and I see it in their blood levels of mercury. I just do. And then I have clients that eat things like opa or sea bass, and I their mercury is off the chart. It's massively high. It's twenty five. Wow. Damn. Brutal. Uh, one thing on the organ meats too, I, I, uh, one nutrient that I think is important uh, that is difficult to get elsewhere and that's bioavailable copper. Yes. Yeah. Right. Liver. Liver is a great source of bioavailable copper. So we can definitely get copper, bioavailable copper, which is important from the organ meats. And then I was talking about vitamin E before, but would we also be able to get adequate vitamin E from the organ meats? And the fat. So I think there are a couple of nutrients that are underestimated in animal fat, and those are vitamin K2 and vitamin E. So uh, people have expressed concern about vitamin E on a carnivore diet. And so I test my blood level of vitamin E and my clients' levels of vitamin E all the time. And my vitamin E is like above normal. It's like high normal all the time. So there's tons of vitamin E. And this makes total sense. Like, why would you be vitamin E deficient eating an animal-based diet? You would never, that doesn't make any sense because animals have vitamin E in all of their cells. It's just that the USDA, you know, recommend the USDA catalog of foods is inaccurate. And it says that some animal foods aren't going to have vitamin E, but they're in there. And I believe I've shown this on my website, Carnivore MD. I've shown my blood labs. <clears throat> I have lots of vitamin E in my blood. All my clients do as well. There's tons of vitamin E in animal foods, but that's a fantastic question because it's very misleading if you just go by things like chronometer, which are inherently flawed. I think that's one of the advantages that you have in this. Uh, what on, what from the outside sounds like an extreme diet, but now that you explain it, I'm like, well, this actually makes a lot of sense. Awesome. <laughs> Eating all the things you say don't to eat might be the extreme diet, actually. But um, what I think is unique and cool about your perspective is, of course, you're knowledgeable and well-educated and you really do your research, but that you're an MD and have the ability to run your labs constantly and the labs of your clients. And I think that's something that's really important because you have empirical evidence that's ongoing. So not only subjectively just based on how you feel, but you can also go, hey, let's see what's in the blood on any given day. I think that's a pretty powerful way to kind of experiment with this and determine what's valid and what's not. Um, The one thing I wanted to cover uh, before we go here is the 
And if we can do kind of a brief overview, I know this is a, a complete rabbit hole that we could go down, but in terms of environmental impact, I think many people are of the notion that if you're using animals in agriculture and raising animals for food, that you are destroying the planet and that cow farts are going to make the ozone layer collapse in on us and we're all going to die. When in my subjective experience of growing up in the country and being around a lot of farms and animals and going to farms like Belcampo and seeing how they've regenerated 22,000 acres of barren wasteland that was all blown out from growing vegetables, uh, that I have a, a different opinion on that, but I really don't know the science. So in terms of you know environmental impact, what's good for the planet, et cetera, uh, what's your take on animals? You're, you're absolutely right on the money there, Luke. And the, you know, I could not have written a book in which I did not address this. And so I did. So last chapter of my book is all about that. Um, kind of the, uh, the ethics of eating meat. And if people are curious about this, I would recommend that they listen to a recent podcast that I did with, uh, Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers, who just wrote a great book called sacred cow and there is a huge interest right now in what is called regenerative agriculture, which is the type of agriculture that tries to recreate an ecosystem. And it is done at farms like Belcampo, White Oak Pastures in Georgia. And it's really indisputable what these farms are doing. I think this is an incontrovertible argument for animal agriculture in terms of the subsistence of humans on this planet. So what you really take away from this is that it is all about the quality of the soil. Soil quality is paramount. And soil is not sexy. It's just dirt, right? Well, there's a saying that Will Harris, who runs Dwight Oak Pastures, has is soil isn't dirt until you mess it up. But soil is full of organic matter. And if you look at the organic matter content of a soil, that single metric will determine whether the people living on that land will die or they will live. Because if they are doing monocrop agriculture and they are pulling all the nutrients out of that soil and they are not using any animals to return nutrients to that soil, as would happen in any normal ecosystem in which animals die and live and compost the soil, think of bison on the grasslands, then that soil will slowly become depleted. This is what happens with monocrop agriculture, the exact type of agriculture that is essentially being celebrated when we are trying to, when people are trying to push support for plant-based ideas and kale and monocrop vegetables. That is depleting the soil of nutrients and that carbon in the soil is going to be much lower. Farms like Belcampo and White Oak have done quantified scientific life cycle analyses that are documented. I've referenced them in my book showing that over time, you can see the soil carbon increase linearly, essentially gradually, with more regenerative farming. It makes sense. When you put animals back on the land, as you're saying, Luke, you can regenerate land that is a barren wasteland from monocrop agriculture. And it's because the animals don't deplete the soil of nutrients. They're eating the grass, pooping and peeing on the land and returning nutrients back to the soil. This is how it works. I think people rightfully so get worried about CAFOs and factory farming, but no one is advocating for factory farming here. What we're advocating for is more regenerative agriculture. In the podcast I did with Rob and Diana, we specifically addressed the question, can you scale this? You absolutely can. All of the cattle in the United States could be raised regeneratively right now. It's just a matter of dollars. 
and people with voting with their dollars. There's enough land. There's enough resources. There is no question 100% of the cattle in the United States could be grass-fed and grass-finished if people demanded it. So the, the scale piece, again, is not even a question. There's a whole thing people don't know about called the, called the Conservation Reserve Program. There are hundreds of thousands of acres of land on in this country that the U.S. government is paying farmers to keep fallow because they are so depleted from monocrop agriculture. This is the government paying farmers not to farm the land so the land can recover because they've destroyed it with monocrop agriculture. Well, you know what would be a much better use of that land? Farming animals on it that are eating grass and pooping on the land and regenerating it way faster. There are so many pieces of land that the U.S. government is paying your tax dollars so that nobody does anything with them. They're laying fallow because they've monocropped the hell out of them. That is ridiculous. If you put animals on that land, let them eat grass, in a few years, you'll start to see that carbon grow and grow and grow. So I'll do the second screen share that I'll do in this, in this uh, amazing live, and I'll show you guys a couple of graphs from White Oak Pastures here. This is from my book. So you can see this graph. This is the soil organic matter percentage. This is the number of years regeneratively grazed. And you know, White Oak has been regeneratively grazed for 20 years. It goes from around 1% to 5%. So when you see 5% soil, you will know that it's regenerative because it looks like dark chocolate. This 1%, this half percent soil looks like it's it's like a lighter shade of brown. It looks like a it, it's just it's like a light brown crayon. It doesn't even look anything like this. It's not even milk chocolate, it's lighter brown than that. There's a video on my Instagram of Will Harris comparing this soil to this soil, and there's no question of what the difference is between these two soils. You can see this. It's an indisputable argument. And this is exactly why it happens, because the cows are on the land. They're, you know, the grass is absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. It's sequestering the carbon into the roots, and it makes healthy microbiota in the soil. The soil has a microbiome too. Cows poop on it. They sequester carbon, and then the soil can grow more plants, and it all gets much better. So this is really... The, the answer, I think, for regeneration is not removing animals from the planet. That would be a catastrophe. If you want to see an apocalypse, get rid of all the cows. Like that is a, when, I don't know. I'm moving to Australia if that happens because we will die. There will be no soil organic matter. And the other thing, you know, we can get, we don't have to get on this rabbit hole. Let's just leave it there. But I would encourage you to listen to that podcast to check out Robin Diana's book as well. The idea is also that these cattle are carbon negative. When you do the life cycle analysis, which I also showed in that, um, in, that, in that section of the book, you see that the cows are sequestering as much carbon or more carbon than they are producing into the soil. They're carbon negative, which just, again, completely destroys all these arguments that cows are a significant contributor per se to greenhouse gases. There are ways to graze cattle that are ecosystems responsible, that improve the soil quality, and then make you and I healthy. And so to me, it's like, it's a no-brainer. This is the future of humans. If we don't do this, we're done. I mean, nature's going to be fine, which is the conclusion I came to with Rob and Diana. Nature will be here without us. The only question is whether humans are going to inhabit this planet in 500 or 1,000 years. And I think that single most important metric for that persistence of humans is soil carbon. If we can increase soil carbon, we'll be okay. If we continue depleting it, we're done. And removing cattle will deplete soil carbon. Not to mention, uh, I've pondered this concept that if everyone on the planet stopped eating cows, 
it wouldn't be long before they were extinct. <laughs> they're, they're not very good at defending themselves against predation. Anyway, side side note. All right, I've got a lightning round for you, and then we'll come to a close here. So I'm I'm going to fire off a few questions uh, from our, our our fans on Instagram that I recorded uh, or captured earlier, and a couple from my brother Andy's story from wildlumens.com. So we'll do lightning round, answer these as quickly as you can, and then we'll close it down here. Uh, if you have severe, this is from Andy's story again from wildlumens.com. If you have severe acid reflux. What meats are usually best? Uh, if you have severe reflux, um, I would probably just stick with red meat. Stick with ruminants. That's my main go-to. And I've talked about that recently with PUFAs. Just eat well-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished ruminants. Um, just start with those one meat at a time and, and go with that. Now, reflux is complex and probably has to do with GI dysbiosis. So see, now every once in a while, I'll meet someone who, um, who, who has a sensitivity to red meat, beef specifically. And if that's a problem, then try lamb. But I do favor red meat over everything else, but make it very simple and see how it goes. But a lot of the times, removing plants from the diet will significantly improve dysbiosis, at least temporarily, and then you can reintroduce plants. Cool. Next question, which plant foods are least harmful should you run out of meat while traveling? I think my <laughs> asked this because he was living in Colombia and still stay, you know, holding true to the carnivore. And he's like, bro, it's hard down here sometimes because you can't get any meat in some cases or, uh, or good quality meat. So I'm, I'm sure that's why he asked that. So fruit, in my opinion, is, is the next, is the least toxic plant food. And that would be things like berries, things we think of in fruit or squash, specifically winter squash. My problem with summer squash is a lot of times you're going to get the seeds and the seeds in summer squash are going to create lectins, but are going to have more lectins. Um, but if you can do a winter squash without the skin or avocado or berries or fruit, that would be my first go-to for plant foods if you can't get meat or if you want to make your carnivore diet like a tier one carnivorous type diet. Okay, cool. And then what, what do you think about high meat, uh, the rotten fermented meat that's supposed to give you a literal high feeling? <laughs> I've not heard of this until my brother texted me. No, I don't think, I, you know, I don't think it's anything magical. What's very interesting about humans is we can eat rotten meat. And I think our ancestors probably did because meat is so valuable. But if you can eat fresh meat, eat fresh meat. There's nothing unique about high meat, in my opinion. Okay. Do you think coffee does anything to your mouth's microbiome, microbiome while on carnivore to make it too acidic? Well, generally the acidity of the mouth is due to the fermentation of sugars by bacteria in the mouth. So I don't think coffee is going to make your mouth acidic, but it's going to give you coffee breath and it's going to stain your teeth. If you read the book, you'll know sadly that I'm no fan of coffee for a lot of the reasons I talked about in this podcast. Oh. <laughs> I'm just crushing you. As I smile with my very yellow teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, coffee, I'm not a fan of. I'll let you guys read the book for why not. Uh, I'm going to drop a podcast on my podcast when this podcast comes out in August. And I'll talk about coffee in that podcast as well. But I'll let you guys read about it, but I'm not a fan of coffee. All right. Next one's an IG question from Joshua Hopkins, who says, uh, God, this is going to be good luck answering this quickly. But he said, how to lose weight on the carnivore diet. And if you're eating so many calories, eating tons of meat, uh, is that going to cause you to get fat? No, it won't cause you to get fat. Remember, 
This is an oversimplification, but at a high level, polyunsaturated fatty acids are the signal environmentally for humans to get fat. If you want to lose weight, eliminate polyunsaturated fatty acids from your diet. Be extreme about it, which means no seeds, no grains, no nuts, no vegetable oils, and low PUFA meat, which means even eliminate chicken and pork. So you just want to eat red meat because they, yeah, they have, yeah, lower. Come on, man. Nope. That's, that's going to be a signal to get fat for people. But if you're, you know, if your body comp is where you want it, you can, might be able to tolerate it, but I don't eat bacon anymore for that reason. I mean, my body composition is pretty good. People have seen me. I've got it. I've got, I've got some abs these days. I usually do, but, uh, I always do. Let's just be honest. Um, but, um, you know, I just don't think that the, the bacon is a good thing for most people. So occasionally, yeah, but I would eliminate the linoleic acid in your diet. You're not going to get fat. A lot of people lose weight with this. That's the trigger. If you want to go low carb, you can, but it's not required. So start with that and go from there. Got it. Then uh, Alia B or Alia dot Green B says, uh, "Would you do a uh, Would you do a podcast with Danny Roddy about Ray Pete's work?" I guess she's probably curious about the whole Pufa thing, which I think we covered. Yeah, yeah, I could do a podcast with him. He's reached out to me in the past, and I just I didn't want to debate him on it. I think that our views are more similar now than they are different, but. Yeah, I've talked about a lot of that stuff on my Instagram as well. Uh, if people are interested in, in my PUFA thoughts, I do these videos a, a couple of times a week. I haven't done one yet this week. I've been busy with other stuff, but they're called Controversial Thoughts with Carnivore MD. People can go back to my Instagram feed or my YouTube, and there's lots of content there, kind of mini podcasts about PUFAs. There's a lot of information there. Cool. Uh, Esther Bergs asks your thoughts on kombucha. Yeah, so kombucha is, it, it's really negative for me because it's, it's got a lot of acetic acid. It's pretty hard on the teeth. So you don't want to drink acetic acid. I know I said that it was mostly the fermentation of sugar that's going to lower the pH of the mouth, but sauerkraut overconsumption can cause damage to the teeth. Kombucha can cause uh, problems with the teeth. I'm not a fan. I don't think it's anything magical. We didn't really talk about the microbiome. Be rest assured, I talk about the microbiome in my book. Uh, if you guys have questions about that, but there's nothing magical about whatever, whether it's bacillus coagulans or Saccharomyces boulardii and kombucha for the gut, in my opinion. I mean, I just don't think we should be getting a bunch of acetic acid in our diet. I would just, you know, if you want the probiotics, um, take the probiotics in a targeted fashion, but I don't think humans need fermented uh, food to be ideal in terms of their gut. That's going to break a lot of hearts, but I think people are going to feel better and their teeth are going to be better without that acetic acid, to tell you the truth. Okay. John Barry, 1994 says, what do you use for soap and moisturizer? Nothing. <laughs> really? No, just water? No, just water. I'm, I'm a little Mowgli, dude. I'm a, I'm a Mowgli man. Yeah, I'm a wild man. I don't use anything. There's no soap in my house. Oh my God. And you don't put any oils on your face or anything? Nothing. Oh my God. Okay. Interesting. I, I think I couldn't leave the house without like putting something on my face. My skin feels so dry. All right. Last one. Ryan Tambari says, does carnivore resolve depression for everyone? Well, nothing is going to work for everyone, but I will tell you, I've seen many clients in which uh, elimination diets, carnivore-ish diets, and carnivore diets have significantly improved depression. So I do think that uh, depression and anxiety and a lot of psychiatric issues are neuroinflammatory and that these are connected with the foods we eat and that some intentional dietary change is the answer for these. So if you do have psychiatric issues, give it a try. Uh, I've seen some pretty incredible things. Yeah, I've interviewed Kelly Brogan a couple times, and uh, 
she, I mean, she does a lot of content around that. So Ryan, if you ever hear this episode, thanks for asking the question and check out the shows I did with Dr. Kelly Brogan because she really goes into the relationship between diet and depression. All right, last question is a three-parter. I ask every damn guest. I don't think I've ever forgotten. You've taught me so much today. It's You've been running circles around me intellectually. It's been hard to keep up, but I think I get the gist of it. Uh, I'm heartbroken about the bacon and the coffee. I have to really give that some thought, um, uh, not to mention the ice cream. But uh, you've taught me so much, Paul, as you have our guests. So who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you might point our audience to go learn from? You know, um, I recently started listening to Tim Ferriss's little mini podcast, Tools of Titans. And it's pretty excellent. It has these little podcasts, which are from his book. And so I really liked the one with Maria Popova and Jocko Willink and Naval Ravikant. So they're all excellent, but I would recommend listening to those. It's kind of just how to live your life. It's the Tools of Titans podcast. It's like little 20, 15 to 20 minutes on uh, different things for entrepreneurs and whatnot. And then more broadly, I've, I've really enjoyed Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly highly Effective People. I think that's a really gem uh, of a book in terms of... uh, I have it right on my shelf right there, actually. Yeah, in terms of entrepreneurs and stuff, it's huge. So check out that Tools of Titans podcast, Hat Tip to Tim. Hat Tip to Tim. And Luke, we're going to just have to replace your coffee and bacon with bone broth and steak. And it's an upgrade. There you go. You know, I was going to ask you about uh, bone broth, actually. I'm assuming you're a fan. Huge Um, fan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I make it every day. Oh, every other every few days. I eat a, I have the biggest instant pot you can get. And I'll get these patellar bones and I'll just make a whole bunch of bone broth and I eat it almost with every meal. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. I get a little lazy with it. Um definitely don't make it, but I get it from Bel Campo. Yeah, it's amazing. Unfortunately, sometimes I defrost it and then I forget about it and it goes bad. I gotta stop doing that. It's like really a first world problem that is obnoxious and I need to <laughs> Make sure that I use that animal um, and respect that quality food. Uh, okay, that's it, dude. Uh, last thing is, where can we find you? Website, social media, et cetera, for people who want to track down and learn more. You produce so much amazing content. I want to make sure that people can find it. Thank you. So the my ask is that people will support me and check out my book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. If you find my content valuable, I think you will really find the book valuable. Check it out, thecarnivorecodebook.com. If you're listening on Instagram, you can go right now and pre-order. If you're listening on the podcast and it's the first week of August, my book is either released or about to release. And we are going to really, I think, change the world with these ideas. And I'm excited for them to help a lot of people. So please support the work by checking out my book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. You can also find all my stuff at carnivoremd.com. All my socials are linked there and I'm at carnivoremd everywhere. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad we finally got to sit down and do it's that. Great, man. I appreciate it. I'll be it remotely, but because you were able to do the couple screen shares, I'm like, hey, the remotes aren't that bad. We do it. It's cool. Yeah, it's great. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. And uh, I think we cover just so much information on this. It's going to really be a master episode on this particular topic, which I've been eager to cover, as you know, but I just, you know, I haven't found the exact right person knowing that you were that person. So I'm stoked. Now we officially have a carnivore diet episode of the show for people that want to learn about that and give it a shot. So thank you so much. And I'm so happy that people would listen. If people have been with us the whole time, I'm grateful that you've 
stuck with us the whole time because these concepts are complex and we had probably a 40 minute discussion of plant toxins and it was only really at the end of 40 minutes that I feel like people begin to understand what I'm talking about. So the long form is so critical. So I appreciate all of you guys listening to this as well and hope it's been valuable. All right, dude. I'll see you next time. All right, man. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining me on yet another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. You can look forward to next Tuesday's show on natural, the hidden cost of wireless technology and EMF pollution with Jamie Ike. In the meantime, make sure to share this show with a friend if you feel so called. Uh, We also have a great Facebook group called the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. It's a private group. Uh, I'd love for you to join. We have about 6,000 people in there now submitting questions and thoughts. And if you're someone that's uh, looking to have your questions answered, we have some brilliant people in that group that really make a great contribution to the uh, community in there. So feel free to join us. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. First off, let's give a shout out to Sir Thrival. Uh, These guys make some fantastic products. I've been using them for many years, and you can find them at surthrival.com. My personal recommendation, just right off the bat, would definitely be the pine pollen extract and the colostrum. I think those are probably my favorite two at the moment and something that, I don't know, I'd have a hard time living without, to be honest. I use them just constantly and um, probably way too much (laughs) if there is such a thing. But surthrival is really unique because all of their Uh, supplements. I mean, they can barely be called supplements because they really are all taken from nature and uh, they don't really use anything synthetic. It's all just based on animals, fungi, plants, etc. Very cool stuff. So go to surthrival.com, use the code STYLE10 to save 10% off. And we've got our friends over at Bioptimizers. You can find them at masszymes.com. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S slash Luke. Masszymes.com. The code there is Loop10 that saves you 10% off their fantastic enzymes, another product that uh, I use on a daily basis, especially when I'm eating a big meal. And then let's talk about protecting our sleep and melatonin with those amazing blue blocking glasses from our friends over at blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X. You can get free worldwide shipping and save 15% off your blue blocking eyewear by using the code LIFESTYLIST. Again, that's blueblocks.com. And then it goes without saying that every product I ever talk about on the show can be found at lukestory.com slash store. So if you have a hard time remembering all these crazy links and codes, all the exclusive discount codes, links, and information about all these products are available in my store. It's a great way to save yourself the time and energy of researching the best of the best because I've done it for you. It's also a great way to uh, save some cash. This can get expensive, this world of biohacking and taking care of your health. Uh, In a perfect world, None of us would ever take any supplements or anything because we would just be living out in nature and we wouldn't get sick like we do. (laughs) But uh, the fact is we are domesticated and as a result, we have to, uh, well, we don't have to do anything, but many of us elect to uh, take products that are supportive of our vitality and longevity. And my online store is a place where I've curated every single thing I've ever found or used that I think is of high value and uh, is effective. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, Personally, after this conversation, I felt a lot better about uh, the current food program that I'm following. It seems to work best for me. And now a lot of the questions that I had about why certain foods don't agree with me have been answered thanks to our guest, Dr. Paul Saladino. So thanks again for joining me. And as I always request, if you feel so called, share this episode with a friend. 